0: I'm J.R. and I'm Paul. And the re- and this is Paul Schoons, by the way, who many of you will probably have heard of. And the reason I'm having Paul on the podcast is because, well, Paul was due to be on with Jono and Brendan a few weeks ago when we were talking about Doctor Who Down Under, but sadly, due to a conflict of timing. You missed the recording by about three minutes or something, wasn't it, Paul? I did.
1: I, I was out of town, and I got back just after you started.
0: Yeah, it was uh, Oh, it was just one of those things. Yeah. But I said at the time, I'll have you back on, and there are two reasons for why. One of which is to go over some of the same things that I went over with John O and with Brendan. But the other thing, well, we'll come to it in just a second. How are you, Paul? Are you all right? I'm well. I'm well. And yourself? I'm very good. We're recording this at, late at night for you and early in the morning for me. I know. So, uh, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm 12 hours in the future.
0: Yeah, you are. See, there's a little bit of time travel already. Mm. Well, well, we've got a few things to talk about because you have, well, as people will know, the ones who know who you are, you've got a few strings to your bow. But one of the things that, I don't know, I suppose is one of the sort of running themes of this podcast is the subject of missing episodes. And you were involved in the recovery of the lion, one of the episodes of the Crusade. That's right, yep. So I think that's a good place to start. Well, tell me the story. Tell me what happened. It's very
1: funny you should say that's the place to start because I always find whenever I meet... Doctor Who fans, particularly when I visit the UK and I'm introduced to a, to another Doctor Who fan, and they'll sort of at first they'll be that sort of blank, oh, who are you, you know, sort of thing, and they may not even recognise my face or my name, but the moment um, I mention finding the lion, their face lights up and they go, oh, that was you. <laughs> so that's it's always the icebreaker. It's always the thing everyone remembers. Yeah, yeah. And even even I was socialising with a group of people I didn't know very well the other week in in, in Auckland here in New Zealand and we were just out chatting and the subject of dot2 came out... I, I it's not something i tend to sort of raise in conversation because you know you don't want to bore people to death you want to talk to people about things they're interested in but the yeah, t- yeah. subject the subject of dot2 came up um independently of me and 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 and, and, I, and so i had the opportunity just to mention my involvement and and, and they said Oh, oh, and did you? This person who didn't know me said, "Oh, did you realise it was a missing episode? Of Doctor Who found in New Zealand." And I said, "I just looked at him and said, <laughs> that was me." <laughs> and then immediately he started wanting to quiz me about all the stuff to do with it because it's just stuck in the memory. Because we're what? It's it's a good what? Sixteen years later now, seventeen years since yeah, 1999, yeah yeah So that's like seventeen years later that we're we're talking about. So so yeah, it's a fair distance of time for people to still remember that event. But, I guess but Zealand, it's it quite, it's, quite well, it's
0: significant, yeah. because let's face it, yeah, Yeah, but but between Tomb of the Cybermen and the Enemy of the World and the Web of Fear, there were, what, two, three episodes found mm. in all that and time?
1: The Day of Armageddon was found as well, wasn't there? The yeah, God and I think there. that
0: was it, mm. the Lion and the Day of Armageddon. It was a yeah, long wasn't drought, wasn't it? Yeah, there was. Yeah. So go on then, The Lion, how did you come across it? What exactly happened? I wasn't involved right at the beginning. I always have to jump in and, 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 and give
1: credit where it's due because um, it was actually a good friend of mine, Neil Lambis, who, who deserves the credit for doing the detective work. He was the one who who followed the lead and, and discovered that it didn't, it existed. Um, well, he believed it existed. He hadn't confirmed it at the point where I got involved. He'd heard through another friend that a film collector in Auckland had a copy of a Doctor Who episode on sixteen millimetre film. This guy was a film collector. He wasn't a Doctor Who fan, and he would show it regularly on his film projector for his friends. And, and wow, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this guy did not. This guy, who owned the film, a chap called Bruce Grenville, did not um associate in, in Doctor Who fan circles. He was he say so he he was completely unaware of the subject of missing
0: episodes. I mean I think and he had no idea how valuable what he was running through none, a projector none might at all. Have been.
1: None at all. And he was he was um he'd bought the the film print a couple of years earlier for the sum total of about five New Zealand dollars, which is <laughs> ridiculously small amount of money. Um because on, on, it wasn't regarded as worth anything because it was an incomplete story. Um, well, do you know where he bought it? Uh, yeah, it was a, um, a film collectors convention. Basically, a group of um, um, film collectors from around New Zealand would get together and, and, and discuss their collection and, and trade and, and sell films to each other. So, wow. It was just a sort of amateur hobby, hobby fair type sort of thing. But um, it, amazing that none of these film collectors had any awareness whatsoever of the value of this thing.
0: Well, it just goes to show, doesn't it? I suppose if film is your hobby, you wouldn't necessarily know about television. And something like Doctor Who, as we'll get on to, is kind of something that would be in the cultural memory. But they wouldn't necessarily be aware of the background to the missing episodes and things.
1: I was thinking about this um just recently, and I was thinking, hold on, this is 1999 we're talking about. I mean, the internet was not as, as um, populated, prevalent. shall we say. yeah, yeah. There were yeah. not a lot of forums around, you know, we didn't have Wikipedia. There, there weren't a lot of places you could go to to look up this sort of thing. So I, I think, you know, that that maybe there just weren't the avenues to, to easily find out if you had something that valuable or rare. I mean, obviously, I was not yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I was going to say, unless you yeah. buy Doctor Who magazine, well, that's you're right. not going to know. Mm-hmm. And is that how you found out about the missing episodes? Oh, Doctor gosh, Who magazine? Probably.
1: I think yeah. probably the first, I think uh, the very first time I found out missing episodes was Peter Haining's, um, book, um, A Celebration, where they had, had oh, okay, that list yeah. in the back of the, the episodes that were missing. I, uh, that's I, I, right, I, no, yeah. I go even further back. The, the Terrence Dixon Malcolm Holt book, Making of Doctor Who, had a chapter at the back which talked about how, how the films were often, you know, the episodes were wiped, but they still had the novelizations. It was kind of a one line mention, the saying that, you know, that they, they, they were not kept after broadcast. Ah, right. It didn't say it, began, it didn't say which ones, it just said that was the yeah. standard practice at the BBC. And and so right. I think I, I think that's probably where I became aware of it. And then the celebration, the Peter Haining book would, would have been the first time that I would have seen a list. Because I didn't get Doctor Who magazine right from the beginning. I I, I picked it up about nineteen eighty four for the first time, so so I would have probably okay, missed out yeah. on some of the early lists that they printed in the magazine.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, go on then, on The Lion, how did you get involved?
1: Well, as as I say, I knew Neil Lambis, he was a good friend of mine, and Neil had um, independently had, had sort of done the detective work. Neil's one of these people who's always believed that missing episodes of Doctor Who exist in New Zealand, and he'd always sort of... Um, been talking about this to me. So he he he'd he'd always come up with the sort of lead of oh oh he thinks he's found the Macraethera or the Highlanders or, 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 or you know you name an episode he, right. he he thinks he's found it somewhere. And these things would you know inevitably come to nothing. Um, not to knock Neil, I mean uh, he's just very very one of these people who's very optimistic about these these things. Um, yeah, and yeah. and so when Neil rings me up one day at, at the beginning of. January 1999 and says Paul Paul I've, I, I think I found a missing episode you can imagine my reaction was a little bit oh that's interesting Neil you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not wanting to discourage him but at the same time a healthy dose of skepticism shall we say and, well
0: having heard this story before well that's right that's really. right,
1: and and so yeah to, <laughs> much as I'd like to say I, I was immediately enthusiastic I, I didn't have a great deal of confidence in it which you know, I'm putting myself down here because Neil was absolutely right and bang on the money, of course. Um, but Neil rang me because he wanted to borrow my video camera. He didn't have one himself, and the arrangement he'd made with Bruce Grenville was that he could go round to Bruce's place and watch the the film being projected, and and he'd ask Bruce, um, could could could, we, could he make a copy of the film, you know, by pointing the the Video yeah. camera at the, at the projection screen and recording it. You know, a fairly crude way of doing it, I guess, but you know, the only yeah. possible way of making a good transfer at the time from. So, so, so he'd have a copy of the episode to take away because Neil did not know at this time for certain that it was a missing episode. It could have been a wind up. It could have been that the information was confused. He just wasn't sure. But what from the information he'd been given by someone who'd seen the episode at Bruce's Place, it was that it probably was a missing episode, he just couldn't be certain. So so Neil goes ring me up and says, Oh, oh, would you like to meet up in town and we'll go around to Bruce's together? The odd thing is I realised only when I met Bruce when we when we got to Bruce's place that I actually knew him. Because Really? Yeah, yeah. Years and years earlier when I'd been at um university, I'd met up with Bruce because I was starting a Doctor Who fanzine at the time. We'll get on this later, but um I was just starting from a doctor Who fanzine with a friend and and Bruce was someone we were talking to because Bruce didn't had, had a um a printery he 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 he'd, he'd print stuff um he was doing more sort of right. like typeset stuff and uh, and letterpress and all that sort of thing and, and, and offset and what have you and 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 he was producing badges and and stamps and all sorts of things, and we were going, "Oh, we might be able to do something in, in relation to the fanzine, and that came to nothing. And that was like a sort of fleeting contact with him. And then years and years later, and I turn up on Bruce's doorstep, I go, Oh, I know you. <laughs> so wow. a very, very weird connection,
0: you know? No, no. Reason. And all that time, well, pro- no, not all that time, but you know. Well, in the no, he'd <laughs> he picked up a copy of this episode. Yeah, would it be weird if he'd had
1: it all the way along, wouldn't it? No, no, he'd, recently, yeah, yeah. he'd only recently got the, he'd only had the film for about a year maybe before we, we just, we, we found out that he had it. Um, Oddly enough, Bruce actually had it listed online on his website, and no one spotted it. <laughs> Which probably tells oh, you something... Oh, good grief. To, probably something that <laughs> tells you something about how, how, what the internet was like in 1999. Because if someone yeah, yeah. listed a Doctor Who Missing episode online as part of their collection now, they'd be, be over them like a rash in five minutes, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> oh, damn straight, yeah. Well, it would be all over the forums, and, it well, was, was, all hell would break no loose. No one
1: noticed. Bruce had it up listed there for, for six months to a year, and no one noticed. So, so anyway, so um,
0: Neil was he had, expecting you then when you turned up at his house? Oh yeah, Neil
1: had Neil had phoned ahead and, and made the arrangement. Yeah, like like I say, Neil had arranged with Bruce to 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 video it. So he, he Bruce had okayed the idea that we would, because we bear in mind we had not arranged anything in terms of like would we ever be able to borrow the film or anything. It was we were going to get a one off showing, and yeah. and we'd be able to video it while we were watching it. So, well,
0: the uh, borrowing and uh, well, all that is uh, quite interesting in itself, isn't well, that's it? We'll right. come to yeah. that.
1: <laughs> that's where I come into play. So we turn, yeah. so we turn, we turn up, and uh, and and I'm still in the back. Remember, remember, I'm quite sceptical, right? So, but I was I, I was keen to meet up with Bruce. Bruce lives in a different city. Uh, sorry, not Bruce. Neil. Neil lives in a different city, incidentally. So he travelled down to Auckland. Um, he lives about two or three hours north of of Auckland, in, a, in another town called Whangarei. So he'd come down to Auckland especially to meet up with Bruce, and, and I don't get to see Neil very often, so we, we want, I was keen to meet up with Neil anyway and he have, you know, go out for a coffee and everything. And so we, we, we go off to see, see Bruce, and we turn up on his doorstep, and Bruce welcomes us in and everything. Now, Bruce is a very odd character, and he just sat down to watch a very long, very dull, black-and-white German film. Yeah. And he's going, I'll just finish this first and Neil leans over to me. Neil knew the film, and he leans over to me, and he goes, he realises it's about two and a half hours long. Wow.
0: And Do you just, know what
1: it was, by the way? Oh, I've got... Uh, it was a... Uh,
0: no. I, can't, <laughs> I can't remember.
1: I, I, Neil, Neil will know. Neil will know. I, I can't remember. It was, so it was something... Uh, it was totally... I was totally like, this is not something I'm interested in. So I'm kind of thinking, this is just a wind-up. He's going to get to the end of this film. He's going to turn the lights on and go, ha-ha, fooled you all, type thing. i just kind of like, oh. But what a bizarre thing to do. You hear about this, don't you?
0: Yeah. I'm
1: not not saying this happened in New Zealand, but you certainly hear about this. I mean, I remember I had dinner with Jeremy Bentham some years ago in in London, and he was telling me this very sad story about how he'd gone to enormous lengths to make contact with someone up in the north of England who sounded really, really plausible and really convincing that he had a missing episode of Doctor Who. And and Jeremy had gone to extraordinary lengths to, to arrange to go and visit this chap in order to see the episode or borrow it or whatever whatever he intended to do, and, and it turned out, you know, when he turned up on the doorstep, of course, it was a complete hoax.
0: Yeah. And, and yeah. he'd gone to
1: an enormous effort to, on, you know, on the, on the belief that it was genuine. So these sort of stories do come out that, that people wind up, I and mean, when there was that one with the tenth planet episode four, wasn't it, that was a complete
0: wind up. Oh, there's been so many. Yeah. So there would that, I and mean, there still are these days.
1: That sort of thing stuck in my mind when I was sitting there watching this, this, this obscure German film, thinking this is just, the reason he's put on this film is, is to, is to wind us up and, and, and make us think that there's, 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 you know, it's just a hoax. It's just a wind up. But, you know, I was prepared to, you know, I, I wanted to, do a, the back of my mind is going, well, don't walk out because, because it might be real. And also, you know, I wanted to support Neil. Neil was obviously enthusiastic. Yeah, yeah. Neil was sort of nudging me and going, no, 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 it'll be okay, it'll be okay. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> two and a half hours later, or I, I might be exaggerating, it might not have been quite that long, but it certainly was a feature-length film, um, that, that Bruce basically said, oh, okay, right, well, we'll show the episode now. So he sets up his film projector and uh, and uh, puts on the film and everything, and it's starting to seem to me like this might actually be the real thing. And bear in mind we were watch we were videoing it at the same time, so we wanted to make because we had an open mic on the on the video camera, so we didn't want to make a sound while the while the episode was on. So when it starts up, and I think it's the point where the you know, after the opening titles, where it goes to the forest with with, with the knights in the forest, and then the, the 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 caption of the lion comes up over the TARDIS materialisation. And Neil and I are just doing thumbs up and shaking each other's hands and everything without saying <laughs> without saying a single word or making a sound. <laughs> so it was a totally surreal experience. It really was.
0: But I guess, in a way, maybe this chap had put on this film as some kind of test of your character. Possibly,
1: possibly. That's... I don't know. I'm, I, I'm not even sure if he thought we were going to turn up or not. I'm, I'm, I don't quite know what was going through Bruce's mind. But, but yeah, I, I if, it, it, put it this way, if it had been me, I would have kind of like gone, well, I can watch the rest of this film later. Or, You know, you guys will come around. To yeah, Bruce's yeah. Show, so I'll, 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 I'll turn the film off and I'll show the episode and then you guys can go away and I can re- watch the rest of my film. <laughs> well, presumably, <laughs> as know. you
0: were coming over to record it, he was aware at this point that it might be something rare.
1: I don't think he was, to be honest. I mean, that really, sounds, it sounds bizarre in retrospect, but I, I, he took some convincing after we'd seen the episode. He just, wow. would, he just. Okay. Well, he... how did he react to that? Well, he just didn't believe the BBC were missing any. He just thought, "Oh, it's Doctor Who. It's too important a to programme. They won't be missing any." He didn't, he didn't you, grasp the idea that there were missing episodes of Doctor Who.
0: Bizarre. But when you had convinced him, what did he say to that then?
1: Well, the awkward thing was, and, and, and this is what was going through my head even while we were still watching it, was how is this guy going to react when we tell him this? Yeah, because... it's because... one of two ways it can go. Either he's going to yeah. go, oh, this is wonderful, we should return to the BBC, or I'm sitting on a goldmine, I'm never ever going to let anyone else see it ever again.
0: Yeah, and it
1: could have gone either y- way.
0: Well, you've not heard this yet, but the podcast we had two weeks ago, which had Chris Perry from Kaleidoscope on, you—you've got examples from him of both of those things. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it—that was
1: it, it, it. Was it was a supreme act of diplomacy? I would have called it. Yeah, um, it was extremely like. And I wasn't because Neil and I hadn't really had an opportunity to discuss it in any great detail. I wasn't quite sure how Neil was going to react. So I was kind of trying to sort of steer the conversation in such a way that we didn't really play our hand too much.
0: Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean?
1: Because if we'd overplayed it and said, look, this is incredibly valuable and rare, then... It then might it,
0: have disappeared altogether.
1: Well, Or it might have... Or it, it might
0: have slapped a price on it that was unaffordable.
1: That's right. Or it might have just passed into a private collector's hand who was prepared to pay X pay amount help. of money. Yeah. And they would have just put it in their vault and that would have been the end of it. There, There is a... To me, there's an alternative reality where the only copy of the line that we ever get to see is the recording that we made on my video camera that night. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? That that, that after that night, the film never gets seen by anyone ever again.
0: Well, just as a matter of curiosity... If that copy was the only copy in existence, do you think the BBC would have put it out?
1: They might have put it out as an Easter egg on, 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 on you know, as something that you could hunt for on on the on the missing episodes DVD. You know, there the, with the Lost in Time one they did. Yeah, they might, yeah. They, but I don't think they would have promoted it because it really it was off centre. It was the sound was shocking.
2: You could watch yeah. it.
1: Yeah, I mean it was watchable. You could see the episode. It wasn't it wasn't beyond repair, but it certainly wasn't in any way, close to being broadcast quality. It was just, you know, it was very obviously a, a, a video camera pointed at a, a projection screen.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so, and, so yeah, and
1: obviously yeah. you've got the, because the, it's right, the, the the video camera is right beside the, the film projector, so you've got the So you got the sound of, the sound click, of that, click, too. Click, 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 you know. The,
0: well, the, the sound could have been repaired, obviously, oh, I'm sure, as we yeah, now yeah, know absolutely. later on, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, you could have replaced the sound with the, with the off-air recordings, but... um but yeah, it still would not have been um, something that you would have put out on DVD as a proper episode. Yeah, but
0: I mean, so what did you do about contacting the BBC? Then was that the next thing? Yeah. Or did you raise this with Bruce first? Well, we basically said to Bruce,
1: take some time to think about it, because we were playing really softly with Bruce. You know what I'm saying? We didn't get him, mm. get him too sort of worried or excited or anything. We just wanted to sort of play it really sort of softly. So we kind of explained to him, yes the BBC probably would like to borrow this episode, that they would like to make a copy and return it to you. I was winging this because I, I hadn't made any contact with the BBC at this point. I just knew that that's what their standard policy was. Yeah. And and so I was kind of like, Bruce, let me make some inquiries and come back to you. How's that? We'll leave it there. I'll leave it a few days. You can think about it. I'll think about it. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to the BBC. I'll come back to you. And Bruce is going, yeah, that's fine. We'll hear from you in a few days. So we left it there. And so that Night, we went back to my place. Neil and I went back to my place, and I emailed Steve Roberts because I knew Steve. I don't know how I knew Steve. We must have we must have sort of talked on forums or something. Um,
0: Rec Arts or something like that. Probably, probably. Yeah, yeah.
1: I wasn't a great Rec Arts user, but yeah, certainly there would have been some way in which I'd somewhere. Yeah, I had Steve's email address in somewhere, and and. You know, I've been running the Doctor Who fan club for many years, and, and at that point, and uh, publishing a fanzine, so I had lots of contacts of people, various places, and email addresses for them. So I would have got had his email addresses somewhere. So I emailed Steve Roberts, and which turned out to be a really, really good thing to do, because as I as I found out later, if I'd gone through the BBC, they would have turned me away. Yeah, yeah, because they were not interested. The standard response from the BBC was that they didn't want to know about missing episodes. If you went for their 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 general reception line, didn't want to know.
0: Well, it's not really changed up until very recently. I know it's pretty shocking, isn't it? You think yeah, you well, think that
1: they, you know, they, they, they'd have a real vested interest in in following up these leads, but no, nope, they just get turned away.
0: Well, I suppose if you're not part of the culture of, um, mm. you know having an interest in vintage television, I suppose a lot of the younger people who come to work for the BBC are all about what they're making now, I guess.
1: That's exactly it. I um I spoke to a um I can't remember his name now, but it was a retired um BBC um television producer, totally unconnected with Doctor Who who came to New Zealand on holiday some years later and he phoned me up he looked me up on the phone book. And he he was basically saying he was in despair because he'd heard anecdotally of a whole lot of people who thought they had missing episodes of all sorts of dif- different television programs who'd just been turned away. You know, yeah. they'd gone through the reception, they'd rung the BBC, gone through the main desk, and, and, and they just basically said, look, if it's not about one of our current television programs that's on air at the moment, we're not, you know, we don't know who to put you through to. And just sort of basically hung up on them
0: quite. and so you've got to track down, you've got to track down somebody like Steve Roberts or Paul Venezis or whoever, somebody who is interested and who will take it up, haven't you? Exactly. So what did what did Steve Roberts
1: say then? Well, Steve was very um. He obviously Steve knew of me just as I knew of him, so he took me seriously from the, you know, from the word go. There was never any doubt. I don't think you know he was. Oh, that's really great. And I said to him, "Look, Steve, what I'll do is I will tomorrow morning I will pop in the post to you a video copy of the my off air so you can see what we've got. Because at that point I didn't know if we were ever going to get anything else, so yeah. at least he'd get a copy. And so I, I sent that off to him the next morning. And um, Neil had to go back home, so he, Neil Neil was leaving Auckland as I mentioned he doesn't live yeah, in Auckland, yeah. and so it was left to me to 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 do with the rest." <laughs> um, I, I got. I went round. I, I phoned um, uh, Bruce a couple of days later and basically said, "Bruce, would it be okay? Look, you know, here's the situation. I talked to Steve Roberts at the BBC. They'd like to borrow the film print. You know, it's still your film print. They're not going to confiscate it from you or anything. You know, and and uh, you know, yeah. Would, would, would you mind? And then he goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, it'll be fine." You know. So I go round to Bruce's place to pick it up, the film print. This is about two or three days later. And I get to Bruce's doorstep, and he goes, "I've changed my mind. I don't think I want to lend to you after all. I don't know you very well, and you might just disappear with my film print, and I'll never see you again." So. So what happened then? So I went back home, and I said, I told Steve this, and Steve wrote a letter, which he emailed through to me that I could print out, which basically explained in very clear language what the BBC wanted to do, and that they had the, you know, the but sort of, sort of a, a, a sort of a, a, a an endorsement letter in a way, you know, that basically endorsing me and endorsing what they wanted to do, and and, and basically yeah. reassuring Bruce, and, and you know, uh, without giving giving him any you know, solid guarantees, of course, but at the same time, basically saying to him, laying out in very clear language, that Steve Roberts, as a representative of the BBC, was sort of, sort of saying what 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 they intend to do with the film and and that they respected his ownership of it and everything. So I took that letter around to to Bruce and Bruce said, That's fine, that's cool. And I uh, took the film away. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and Bruce has he's really understanding to be oh. honest, isn't I, he? I he is yes. He is. But I mean to his credit, to his credit, I've never knocked that. Yeah. Um I I, I Bruce lived at the bottom of a very, very steep long driveway and I'd parked at the top of the road. And I can remember Bruce sort of standing in the doorway watching me go up the hill with this film print under my arm. And I was kept in the back of my mind going, any moment, I was going, no, wait, I've changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't want to walk too fast, but I didn't want to walk too slowly or anything. That really sticks in my mind, that walk, through, that very long walk up his driveway and expecting him to call me back at any minute. Because of course, once I'd got the film, you know, I was like, yes, yes, we're underway. And, and then I, um, Sent it at Bruce. Uh, sorry, at Steve's instruction, I sent it directly to Steve Roberts, not to the BBC, because again, this is something that happens if it goes through the <coughs> mailroom at the BBC, stuff goes missing. Yeah. So, so I send it directly to Steve's address at his instruction by FedEx, which cost me a bomb. Sending a film print from one end of the world to the other by FedEx is a very expensive exercise, even back in 1999. This I is, can
0: imagine. This, this, I don't this, know this, where this ex- ex- is
1: going. <laughs> this speech <experience> is relevant <laughs> for things we all come to. <laughs> yeah, quite. Which is the credit. Anyway, so so Steve gets the, the film. Pre- I think because of the haste at which I arranged this, if I remember rightly, Steve received the FedEx parcel on the same day that he got the posted videotape that I'd sent him, if you remember. Because they wow, had a yeah. standard post around the world, and the FedEx thing had gone, obviously, express here. So they arrived at the same time. <laughs> so, Steve wow. had the film at the same time as he had the videotape. I think.
0: I wonder if he ever put the videotape on. Oh, he did. Compare... He did watch
1: it. Yeah, he did watch it. Because yeah. obviously, when he got it at his home, he didn't have any means to immediately watch the the 16 millimeter film print at home. He had to take it into the into
0: the television. And probably, yeah, seat, probably sort of yeah. wouldn't have wanted to either until it's well, it right. safely made a copy. Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's the one thing I think. The, one of the very first things Steve said to me, even before we'd um arranged to borrow the film off, off Bruce, was, "Tell Bruce, do not." Show it again,
0: yeah, yeah. Because
1: every time it's screened on a projector, it, 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 there is a certain amount of inevitable wear.
0: Yes, absolutely. And you can
1: tell by watching the thing just how many times Bruce must have screened that that, that film print, because there's a lot of scratches down it. So, and of course, yeah.
0: uh, you project it, you also run the risk that something nast- even nastier is going to happen. Well, that's
1: right. It can break, it can, uh, it can melt, yeah. all sorts of things can happen. So
0: so we're pretty lucky to get it back in the condition we did, to be absolutely. honest.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. It was missing the end of the credits. The, the 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 last bit, I think Douglas Canfield's credit had to be cut from another episode and stuck over the top, because it cut out on, uh, for some reason, the end of the thing had been cut off. So, yeah. Oh, bizarre. Yeah. But it, it was, but that was the only bit that was missing, as far as I know. So that was easy enough to restore that. I can remember so, Steve going, "Oh, where can we get another? Oh, can we get a Douglas Douglas credit from Dalek Master Plan or something?" I remember emailing Steve back and going, "What about the third episode of the Crusade?" And he goes, "Oh, yeah, yes, I was of just course, say. <laughs> <laughs> it's right there, Steve."
0: <laughs> it's close what a silly question! <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. But we were all—none of us were thinking that clearly at that point, to be fair.
0: <laughs> well, go on then. Tell me how happy the BBC were to have it back.
1: Oh, I'm sure they were ecstatic. I mean, they rushed released it out on video, didn't they?
0: And, yes, uh, which, which I heard <laughs>
1: about third hand. <laughs> we, we, um, the BBC were so happy to get it back; they completely omitted any mention of myself or Neil from the liner notes of the videotape. Um, it was only thanks to Steve Roberts that we even got copies of the videotape, and. Um, I think at Steve's Express insistence, because he was running the restoration team at the time, yeah. the Australasian and maybe the US release, I don't know if they had liner notes, but they, 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 they were amended to include our names. But yeah, the, 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 U, the UK version did not make any mention of us whatsoever.
0: And the money you spent on FedEx? Oh, yes. hmm <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the video has been out on, on, and sold really well. And, um, obviously everyone's got a copy. And six months down the track, I'm still sitting there having, you know, emailed and faxed the BBC repeatedly for, 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 for refund of my. I mean, I'm not looking. I, I didn't make a cent out of... I have to say this. I didn't make a cent out of the line. Yeah, I, no. I was only looking to get my FedEx expenses repaid. And, and it took. And that's fair enough. Of oh, course, they've made money out of this. Of oh, course, yeah. I It was always the understanding that the, the the um my FedEx payments were going to be covered. That was the understanding right from the beginning. I had an email trail that said this, and I had assurances. But because I, I because I think I was at the other end of the world, and it required a bank transfer or whatever it was that they their excuse was. It was just too hard, and I was kind of like bemoaning this to other people, and eventually someone and it may have even been Steve Roberts again, said to me, Why don't you just fax them a copy of your credit card statement and highlight the interest rate on it? <laughs> now I I'd paid it off. I'd obviously, you know, I'd I'd paid off my credit card. I wasn't going to lie, sort of just waited let the interest accrue. but I I wasn't only I was only showing the, the initial statement. So as far as they knew, I had six months worth of accrued interest on there. And so I basically pointed out. You know, I, I sent off the copy of my my, my my credit card statement that's showing the FedEx bill and 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 the and the and the interest rate. And sure enough, the very next day I got the payment. Wow. So <laughs> I think that they thought, oh shit, we can't stall any longer.
0: Like getting blood out of a stone, though, isn't oh,
1: it? But I understand that. I mean, I've done I've done freelance work for the BBC since, and it's it's a vast corporation, and the people who employ you to do the work are not the same people who pay you. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I was so, just going to say yeah. that.
0: It, it's go, one of those things where yeah. you just kind of get lost in between all the various different departments.
1: I think everything that the BBC does, maybe not now, I don't know, maybe it is still the same thing, gets all funneled through one account's department. And right. so so everyone submits all of the paperwork to one account's department, and then the actual money gets funneled out the other end of this department. And, and it, it's just not a very sort of... Uh, practical way of doing things. I think maybe the money should be apportioned to each area of the BBC and the people get to pay that money out from, from where they are rather than having to submit everything for this one department.
0: I don't know. I'm on course, the
1: outside of this so I don't know if that's how it works but that's from an outsider's perspective that seems how it works.
0: Well I mean and if there is a, a department like that they're going to need like paperwork in triplicate before they'll pay anything out aren't they mm, so.
1: I, mean, I i like i say i've had this problem since the work i've done on the dvd since then it just took an enormous amount of time to get the pay it's just ridiculous well
0: you before know. we go on to that oh, actually, yeah sure mm-hmm. so uh, this is the episode that you've found and been responsible for returning we i mean since that point has searching for more has that been a part of your life and have you ever got close or ever thought you got close or or did it or did that episode become something of a dead end after that because i mean like you say you were talking about your friend always coming up with ideas about where episodes might be neil's
1: Neil's never really given up the hunt he's he he still thinks there's more out there Uh, he's he's always had a very strong belief that he watched uh neil's neil's about four or five years older than me he has a belief that when he was at um, secondary school, or maybe it was primary school, they had a rained-off sports day and they were shown um, episodes of Doctor Who in the school hall on on film. <laughs> Isn't that the Macro Terror? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that's been, you know, obviously a lot of people tried to track down the source of that, but the, the trousers' long since gone cold. It's not beyond the realms of possibility. I can remember at school that we would get to see cartoons and things like that, you know, Tom and Jerry yeah. and all that sort of thing on film because the school would borrow them from somewhere. And there'd be right. nature doc there'd be nature documentaries and that sort of thing. There was some sort of interloan system going on. Now whether that would have ever included loaning stuff from the from the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation's archive, which was the forerunner of Television New Zealand who yeah. would have held the, the films of the, the Macro Terror at the time, I don't know. But those We've done the research, I mean, from what, before anyone descends on New Zealand, I really should say that the research has been done in terms of what exists now in in the archives in New Zealand, and, and there's definitely nothing here now. We're 100% certain of that. There's nothing in, 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 in the official archives in New Zealand.
0: It's one of those things now where it strikes me that in places like that, it's more likely now that episodes are only ever going to turn up if they've been in somebody's attic and they eventually turn up in a car boot sale or something like that. And by doing so they'll fall into a collector's hands. There
1: there are a lot of film collectors in New Zealand. There are a lot of um, films in private hands in New Zealand. Whether these are films that are of any value, I mean, bear in mind there was an awful lot of American television programs screened here in the, 60s and 70s, you know, lots of episodes of Gunsmoke and Bonanza and all that sort of thing, they are the sort of thing that is likely to turn up in anyone's collection.
3: They're yeah, not, yeah. They're not,
1: they're not missing episodes of, of BBC television programs for, for some reason. They, those tended to get cycled onto to other countries. We know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we know, we know from looking at the, because the, we've managed to get um, access to the program traffic records from New Zealand in the 60s and 70s, so we know which countries our episodes were sent to after they were screened here. Right. And, and most of our stuff went off to Singapore. So there's no way that most of the episodes could be found here.
0: Well, do you know how come the lion stayed behind then?
1: Uh, ironically, it never screened
0: here. Right, gotcha.
1: It was <laughs> I uh, think, I think that's like a trial they,
0: print sort of thing.
1: I, no, it's not a trial print. It's that they, got, they bought the episode intending to screen it But it got turned down by the New Zealand censor. There were a number of 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 Doctor Who episodes from the 60s that were purchased by television uh, New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation with the intention of screening them. But the censor they had to be submitted to the censor, and the censor going, you either need to cut this, or you can't screen it, or or it's uncuttable. There are there are scenes in it which are unsuitable for children because the standards of what was acceptable for children's screening in the nineteen sixties was a lot was a hot higher yeah. threshold than what it is now. You know, you you can screen un, uncut episodes of nineteen sixties Doctor Who in the middle of the afternoon here now and no one will bat an eyelid, you know, you don't have to make any cuts whatsoever. But back then they had to cut out sort of lumbering ice warriors and, and, and Daleks and all sorts of things because they just were not acceptable for children's broadcast. And so the lion, for whatever reason, possibly like the sword play and the, I don't know, the statue, yeah, uh, that sort of thing, thought, maybe yeah. it was a bit too, the violence was a bit too realistic, maybe that, that was uh, blocked from screening. It, it couldn't be screened. And I think what happened, I mean, these episodes could have been screened, but they would have been screened later in the evening. And, yeah, and, yeah. and they wanted to obviously screen them at a family viewing time, much like in, in the UK, where it's sort of like five, six o'clock in the evening. And so, so I think the episodes this, of the crusade, Went into storage in the hope that maybe they could be, I don't know, resubmitted to the sensor at a later date or maybe screened later in the evening. Or they, just because they hadn't been screened here, they were kind of like, oh, we'll put them on hold. You know, they just went on the shelves and they stayed there for, for some time. And then eventually they they were dumped.
0: Well, I was going to say then, Mm. would the other two missing installments of The Lion have been? With the rest of the crew of the crusade, have been with the lion at some almost point. Almost and... certainly.
1: Yeah. Why would they ever been split up? They would. They were almost yeah, exactly, certainly yeah. all gone to the dump at the same time. And and simply what it was. And this is the sort of the post discovery investigation. We were able to track the trail back through the various owners of the lion, all these film collectors over the years, and it turned out that um, it was a sort of a surreptitious thing, a sort of slightly covert operation whereby a film collector in Wellington was tipped off to the fact that these episodes of lots and lots of television programs from all around, you know, mostly American, like I say, there's an awful lot of American film prints, were going to be dumped in landfill. And basically this collector was tipped off and he was told by the, the person who was, you know, the contractor doing the dumping, if you turn up on a certain day and a wink and a nod, you can take away some... You can take away a random assortment, just pick some out and just take them away. So it's by sheer chance that one episode of Doctor Who happened to be in that that lot that
0: he got. But yeah, like oh. you say, the other
1: ones were probably there,
0: and they'd be in that landfill now. Probably. Well, they would not be in
1: any state whatsoever. <laughs> they'd be, no, they'd be, they'd be, well, they'd be, you know, they would not have survived, no way. But um, no, but, but uh, then that
0: heartbreaking to I know, make that discovery. It is.
1: It is. But, you know, we've got what we've got. <laughs> we, we, <we're>... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the positive is that we've found it, we got an episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you that. can't
0: look back and say, oh, well, what if? Because the thing is, you can't travel back in time and you can't change it. So you mm. just have to live with it.
1: Part, part of me kind of hopes that, you know, another copy of The Crusade might soon up somewhere. But then in some ways that sort of overwrites our discovery, doesn't it? Just find, find another copy. I don't know. I know you'll always be in the history books. Well, We're not. The number of times but, the number of times that the history of missing episodes has been found, and as it has been written since then, and they get the facts wrong, it's amazing even even when even when Doctor Who Magazine did their tally snap specials, they completely got the facts wrong about the about the, the crusade, and it was quite distressing I at the, to me at the time.
0: you must surely be mentioned in wipe though, yes, Yeah, yes. of course,, yeah. That's the but that was that's because.
1: Said. That was because when White was being written, I contacted the author Richard Molsworth, is it? I think it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and said to him, "Hey, you know, can I read the chapter on the Crusade?" And so he emailed me a copy of it, and and I made extensive corrections and sent those back to him. And I got Neil to 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 look at it too and make his notes as well. So, so I that... thought
0: this was a well-known story, though. I'm amazed to discover it's not.
1: I just think that maybe just it's sort of Chinese whispers. I think probably that unless you're actually the person who lived through these experiences, then you're always getting a second hand account and yeah, I and, guess and, so. and and things maybe just get a little bit distorted in the retelling and, and well
0: you know? oh, I, was only gonna, I was gonna I was going move on mm-hmm. i I was going to take you back to your childhood then because mm. because Obviously, your interest in Doctor Who, and the reason why you'd even be looking for lost episodes in the first place, is because you'd have seen some of these when you were a kid. And here's the thing about New Zealand. New Zealand was the first country, uh, you know, other than the UK, to show Doctor Who, wasn't it?
1: That's absolutely right, yes. We were the very first. It was going to be Australia, but Australia delayed their... Their, their screening for for some time and so we ended up by default being the, the first first country in the world. Eighteenth of September nineteen sixty four was our, our premiere date. So it's Who. still a
0: fair away I mean uh, by modern standards. Oh, it's it almost feels a year like a fair old way. Yeah. But actually, in those days, that's not really so long at all. Because, no. I mean, you hear about black and white episodes still being shown into the 1970s. Mm. And, you know, you hear about things like, I don't know, series one of Doctor, season one of Doctor Who. Still being shown well into the mid and late sixties in various places. I, I
1: think, I think it was a very sort of slow distribution network in the time. Mm. You know, the rights had to be negotiated. A price had to be agreed upon. Then the actual physical 16 millimeter film prints had to be struck from the master copy and then sent via, I guess by sea or air to Australia and then sent on from Australia to New Zealand. It was a very long and arduous process by which we would actually acquire episodes of BBC television programmes so so yeah that year becomes very understandable when you take all that into account
0: yeah and well you've mentioned the fact that the crusade wasn't shown was that was that common
1: very much so we missed out on so much doctor who um we our, we, we got the first three stories that group of the 13 episodes from unearthly child through to edge of destruction and then there was a very long gap about a year's gap. And then we got Marco Polo. And then there was another really long gap. And then we got Reign of Terror. So, they, so they jump, wow. they jumped the rest of season one. And, and then from then on, we just got holes in it. Basically, we missed out on Dalek Master Plan. We missed out on Dalek Invasion of Earth. We missed out on the chase. We just didn't get Dalek stories. Basically, Dalek Mania passed us by. But um, well, do you know why? I think it may have been something to do. We definitely got, we received a Dalek um, invasion of Earth because we know from the program traffic records that that one was received into New Zealand. So that yeah. was a, that was a censor issue. By the time the Crusade, sorry, no, the time the Chase and Mission to the Unknown Dalek Maskman came along, I believe Terry Nation was getting fidgety about his rights, and so they were yeah. not available for overseas screening. I believe that to be the case. I, I I'd, I'd need to check that, but I think that from particularly from reading Wiped, I think they make a point in there about about, about Terry Nation withdrawing his overseas screening rights on those episodes. So I think well, do you know what...
0: why they skipped even things like the Keys of Mariner's and the Aztecs? Maybe the Aztecs suffered from the same thing as the Crusade, but the Keys of Mariners? No, they just weren't
1: even purchased. They just just they just basically skipped ahead. Maybe they were trying to catch up, I don't know. Maybe they didn't think it was important to buy everything. We just never got those episodes. They were just, just skipped altogether. Just like I say, we know from the program traffic records which ones were purchased but not, not broadcast. Yeah. So we so we know, you know, the ones that like Web Planet, for instance. We bought the Web Planet, but it was turned down by the sensor as being too scary,
0: so we just never saw it. <laughs> <laughs> kind of ironic when you look at it well, now. A giant
1: ants in it. Incident. How terrifying is that? <laughs>
0: yeah, I suppose it would be. And of course I tell you what, the thing I think people always forget is that Doctor Who used to be seen on tiny little televisions. And so, although the pictures, when you blow them up onto a big yeah. screen these days, look as hokey as all hell, yeah. actually, you see it on a very small telly, and a lot of those effects and Maybe. character costumes Maybe. and stuff would look a lot yeah. more realistic. By
1: by the time we got to season four, we were doing a lot better. The only season four story we didn't get was faceless ones. So we got, oh the, really? We got the two Trout and Dalek stories. Yeah, I was and, just going to say. Yeah. So
0: you got power and evil then? Possibly
1: because they were David Whittaker or maybe the rights had been relaxed by that point. I'm not sure, but we definitely got those. And and yeah, so 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 yeah, it was only faces ones, which again was a censorship issue. It was to do with the the, the comedians being too frightening, I think, and so we just didn't get that. And then we That's got bizarre. most. And then we got a fair bit of season five. I think we missed the ice warriors and Fury from the deep again, possibly too scary. Um and then we didn't get anything of Season 6 whatsoever. So after Wheel in Space, it just went dead. For years, we didn't have no Doctor Who. We got we got Wheel in Space in 1971, so we were a few years behind by this point, and then the next Doctor Who we got was 1975. And what would that have been? Spearhead from Space. So you... Wow. And that's so... me. That's where I come in. At the tender age of... just
0: crazy, yeah. At the,
1: at the t- tender age of seven years old, <laughs> I I saw my first Doctor Who in 1975, which was um, Spare Heaven Space, which was screened at almost exactly the same time as you guys in the UK were seeing Genesis of the Daleks, to give you a context of how far behind we were. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, we moved you, on you, to Doctor before then, you, yeah. you were a
1: whole other Doctor by the time we were seeing. And the weird thing so, was... Yeah, sorry. Go on, the, yeah. the weird thing was, is that soon after... um. I started watching Doctor Who with John Pertwee, obviously, that I, st- I found the Target books in the library, and I although I can't, and also found TV comic in the bookshops, and although I can't really remember the the, the, the confusion over it, I must have been reading Tom Baker stories and, and, and reading a Tom Baker comic while watching yeah. John Pertwee on television. The thing the thing that always bugs me is I can't really remember the confusion I had around that, you know, whether whether that really bugged me as a child, whether because he had curly hair I just thought, Oh, he's just he's wearing different clothes.
0: <laughs> well yeah. Well I I was of an age where regeneration was one of the earliest things I remember. So the idea of there being different doctors was something that was already, you know, in my consciousness my, before I even yeah. discovered the target. My books.
1: my mother who Grown up. we. we I, I was born in London, incidentally. I moved to the UK, to, from the UK to New Zealand when I was five years old. So I was, right. a rec- I was a recent arrival. I'd been in New Zealand for about two years by the time Doctor Who started here. But my mother had been a Doctor Who fan as a teenager in the UK. She'd watched um, Hartnell, Trout, and Pertwee on television in the UK. So she encouraged me to start watching it when it, when it appeared on New Zealand television because she was confident that it would be something she thought I'd enjoy. So yeah. she's, she was totally to blame to get, for getting me hooked on it. So, and I
0: suppose the chances are she yeah. would probably have explained things like the fact that there well, that, were different doctors. That's too. what I was
1: going to say to you. My whole concept of regeneration came from, from my mother telling me the backstory of everything that I hadn't seen. Right.
0: Yeah. I remember actually watching my first Dalek story and my dad saying to me, the Daleks are on tonight, you'll like this.
1: Which one was that been for you?
0: Oh, that would have been Planet of the Daleks. Right, yeah. Yeah, but no, I definitely remember him saying to me beforehand. You know, this is something you'll enjoy because mm. although I was obviously already watching Doctor Who by that point, he said this is the one that's going to have the Daleks in. Yeah, the, and and the, that's special, isn't it? Yeah, yeah,
1: the the thing that bugs me about growing up with watching John Pertwee stories is just how much we missed because we only got ten John Pertwee stories.
0: Oh, because by this point already some of them didn't exist in colour anymore. Is yeah, that I I I
1: guess so, yes. And New Zealand had just moved to colour at that point. I think we got Spare Heaven Space and Doctor Who and the Silurians were the last two we got in black and white. And then after that they're in colour. I didn't have a colour television at the time, so I was you know, knowing being seven years old I didn't really appreciate that sort of thing, but yeah. um so Doctor Who was just Doctor Who and I think in some ways possibly I found it scarier in black and white, I'm not sure. But, oh,
0: I would <laughs> think so, yeah.
1: But um, we missed out on every single Roger Delgado story. We did not yeah. see the master at all. And and it's now weird. That's really
0: weird, isn't yeah. it?
1: It is weird. It's especially weird because years later, having reread and read intensively over and over again the Target novelizations, I built up this false memory in my mind that I'd actually seen all these stories. So when I actually watched yeah. Reggie Delgado you know, I finally got to see these stories I was going, I've never seen any of this before.
0: <laughs> it's all completely new to me. So then this is the thing that you hear so often from Canadians and Americans is that they had Doctor Who virtually running on a loop. Did New Zealand never get to that point? Because by the sound of it, it sounds pretty intermittent. It,
1: it started to catch up partly because they missed out so many John Pertwee's that helped them to catch up a bit. We got Tom Baker in 1978, and then from only from about then onwards, it was pretty much with a few gaps, it was year round. Um, but we weren't so you a, were it, it,
0: getting repeats then?
1: No, not repeats. They were just catching up. We were only getting oh, right, one okay, off. Yeah. It wasn't a, it wasn't a loop like you say. We were just getting them one off. So if you missed them, you missed them, which was a distressing in, a, in the pre-video age, you know if. If we were away on holiday or we were out for the day or something, uh, I missed Doctor Who. That was a real real tragedy.
0: <laughs> so it was as bad for you there as it was for us here. That's
1: right. It was a one once-off screening. So so we missed out on Genesis of the Daleks. We missed out on um, Invasion of Time, Horror Fang Rock, Sunmakers. It was scattering the stories that just basically, for some reason, they just didn't screen. I'm really not quite sure. Genesis might have been a nation issue again. I'm not, I'm not non sure. But, um. Well,
0: again, it could have been actually a censorship issue. It could that?
1: have been. It could have been. Well, we, because the, the records that we have don't exist by that point. So we went, we, we just don't know what the reasons were. But, um. Yeah. So, so by 1982, we'd caught up. 1983. 82, we got Legopolis. 83, we got Peter Davison. So we were catching up. We were only about a year behind. So.
0: Well, and actually. I was going to move on and talk mm. about something else, but as soon as you've just brought that up, yeah, yeah. by 1988, you actually, for a little while at least, were ahead of us, weren't you?
1: Oh, I'll come to that. Shall we just go back a little bit? Yeah. Because by the end of 83, we were really getting close, because by this time, I was obviously reading the reference books. I had some things like the Program Guide and, and, you know, and the Hay and Ink book and things like this, and I was starting to get Doctor magazine, and I was aware that we were almost up to date. We got Mordred Undead in November 1983. So we were going like, you know, we're only a little bit off Five Doctors, you know. I was aware that Five Doctors were screening in the UK in that, that same month, and I'm thinking, we're only a few few stories away. We're almost there, we're almost there. And then Mordred Undead was the final. Say what? It was the final. It was It was the last story we got. Doctor Who went off air after Imogen Undead and didn't come back for eighteen months. So well, like, why
0: would that be?
1: Don't know. I mean, and that's
0: halfway through the know, thing I with know. the Black Guardian as well.
1: And then the Tyros just joined and it's just an awful place to stop. It's just kinda of like, What? <laughs> and so so for the next eighteen months I was kinda of like oh, I was reading the target books, that's some ridiculous things, we've got the target books here. So I was you know, I read Terminus and Enlightenment and all those ones. I was still reading the books, I still knew what happened. But we weren't seeing any of the stories. And then when Doctor Who did come back in 1985, you know, a year and a half later, we got Patrick Troutman and John Pertwee. And so we got this whole run from uh, Mind Robber, which we'd remember we'd never seen before because he never got season six. And, and so we got Mind Robber, uh, Crotons, and then from Spear from Space, we got a complete run of Doctor Who right through every week. And so that was just, in some ways, in one way it was bad because it meant, oh, we've got years and years to catch up. But on the other hand, it's getting to see all these stories I'd never seen before.
0: Yeah, I was going to say it's not actually that bad, is it? No,
1: it was a, it, <laughs> it was sort of a bit of good and a bit of bad at the same time. So it was a real mind robber
0: <laughs> or terminus. I think like, I know what I'd I, choose. If you'd asked me at the time, I would have said
1: terminus because I was so yeah. desperate to see the new stuff, and I really had no way. I didn't know any. I didn't have any pen pals. I didn't know anyone else who who had the tapes or anything like that, so I had no way of seeing these stories. So for me, I desperately wanted to see new Doctor Who. And so I was a bit, it sounds awful to say it now, but I was a bit resentful of watching these really, really old episodes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just because I wanted to be up to date, and I was reading Doctor Who magazine, and I was reading these reviews of things like Warriors of the Deep, which sounded like a fantastic story, and Awakening, and Frontius and all these great new stories, and I was thinking, I really, really, really want to see these, and I just couldn't. There's no way of seeing them. For years and years, I didn't see these stories. I didn't when see you're them. Are
0: kid, and That's what you want, oh, isn't it? Oh, I'm and a teenager
1: still. by this point, you know, fifteen, sixteen. But um, it's not till 1987
0: that I get to see any of them. So it's not well, yeah. And 19 because we're going to run out of time if we don't move on <laughs> a bit. But 1987 <laughs> is um basically when you start getting more involved as well, isn't it?
1: 1987 is when I when I went to university. Left school, went to university, and and I met a fellow Doctor Who fan, also called Paul. His name is Paul Sinkovich, and he had pen pals overseas. He had off air tapes of Doctor Who, and so he started lending me stuff. and The very first thing I watched was Trial of a Time Lord, and that was for someone who'd left off with of Morgan Undead. That was <laughs> mind blowing to jump ahead like yeah. that and just start seeing new Doctor Who, and and so I he. I didn't watch them in any sort of order. He just kept lending me tapes every few days and and eventually I caught up. The funny thing was, the way he was getting these tapes was that he was recording stuff off air in New Zealand and sending it to the UK. Because
0: you were getting repeats of stuff that we couldn't see in the UK. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And years later when I would talk to people like Paul Cornell in the UK... They would say how they had memories of when the tape ran out. There'd be like a TVNZ logo on the end of it. So yeah, <laughs> these tapes were proliferating around the UK. So so yeah, we were, it was a, it was a fair swap. I think we were getting stuff we hadn't seen, and you guys were getting stuff that you couldn't see because this is pre home video, I guess. So
0: I think we were getting the better end of the deal <laughs> over here.
1: I think we were both <laughs> benefiting, to be honest. I, I was lo- you, I was loving getting to see all the. I mean, I, I, yes, sure, you know, Trial Time may not be the best quality, but you know, I got to see Kayser around I got to see you know stories that I really really wanted to see. So that was great. Yeah.
0: Very true. Very true. Well, and you've alluded to it a couple of times now. The, the fanzine getting yeah, involved yeah, in sorry, fandom. I was going, yeah, this I was must be when this happened.
1: <laughs> so, so, but so yeah. Once, so Paul Sinkovich and I once we sort of like made contact, I'd started watching the stories. And Paul had all these pen pals, and we're going, right, what are we going to do? We need to. Have, there's no organised Doctor Who fandom in New Zealand. As far as we're, I, I know, there never had been any Doctor Who fandom in New Zealand. There'd just been scattered people who liked Doctor Who around the country. And so we basically said, let's do a fanzine. We didn't think of a club because we thought they're all scattered around the country. And my idea of what a club was is when you all met up and watched things together and talked to Yeah, somewhere. precisely. Yeah, okay, they're all pen pals. They're all scattered from one end of the country to the other. So let's just, just have a fanzine that we, that we can produce and everyone can write in for and write reviews and articles and stories and everything. And and, and we'll, we'll, we'll publish this on the university's photocopiers and we'll mail it out to
0: people. And, that and was of what, course, <laughs> yeah. just going back, this is where you met um, Bruce, of course.
1: Yes, yes, going right back to to, to what we were doing about originally, yes. I met Bruce when I was at university and we are doing the printing of the fanzine. But um, Anyway,
0: the fanzine then. Time Space visualizer TSV, yeah. And which, of course this is quite famous worldwide.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I didn't realise at the time just how big it was going to get. I just thought this was going to be a small-scale venture just for local fans, but of course... Over the years, the the, the interest in it from overseas grew and grew to the point where we were sending more copies overseas than we were locally. So, yeah, and it ran for 15 years, I think, maybe even more. Uh, It started in 87 and it ran to about um, 2008, 2009, I think, was the last issue. It ran for. 20 odd years. Yeah, 76 issues in total. So, yeah, it was quite a. Long long run fanzine. And um I edited most of them myself. I there were a couple of there were a few other editors during the time, but most of them were done by me. Yeah.
0: So what kind of stuff were you getting? And were you getting mostly New Zealand writers, or did that change as the fanzine grew?
1: It certainly started off as New Zealand writers, yeah. It was very much um, who 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 we could find locally. Um people like David Bishop, who went on to be a um, you know, a a novelist for the, the, the Doctor Who range he started out writing for TSV. Warwick Gray, who who everyone knows now as Scott Gray, who's the editor of the, the Panini comic strip. He was yeah. he, he's a New Zealander who was who who drew the covers for many of the issues that I published. He drew <laughs> uh, he drew comic strips for us but long before he got published by Doctor who magazine. He wrote articles and stories and all sorts of things. So there quite a few people who have gone on to be quite successful in other realms. Adam Christopher, who's now a um a, a well-respected science fiction author, Uh he he was the editor of T.S.V. for a while, so yeah, there's some there's some there's some big names in there. And then once we got well known overseas, um we started to get contributions. from people like Andrew Pixley and David J. Howe and 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 people like that would start writing for us. And Al Robert Sherman had a regular column in T.S.V. for a while, so so yeah, we we got quite a bit of recognition
0: over the years. Did did doing TSV lead on to other things then? Because, I mean, you hear stories about we started with a fanzine and the next thing we knew we were running conventions and stuff. What did TSV mean?
1: For me personally, I think it opened doors for me. I mean, it got me, it got me, um, recognition. So it meant that I could go to people and go, I want to write a book. And, and they go, Oh yes, what's your idea? Because they knew me already. So I had a sort of instant credibility in that respect. Um, it it got me the commission to work on the BBC DVDs. Um, Martin Wiggins was one of my readers, and when he got the um the editorship of the infotext on the DVDs, he I was one of the ones he approached simply because he had read and liked my work in TSV. So TSV was entirely responsible for me getting that work. So that's Oops. me personally, that that that's a big part of yeah of it. But, um, yeah, it, it, I think it was a springboard for a lot of people, not just myself, in terms of, you know, like I mentioned, David Bishop and
0: yeah, War- yeah. Warwick
1: Gray would be the two big ones, I think. Um, Alistair Hughes, certainly, who was an artist, he got a fair bit of work overseas as well. So,
0: yeah. It was well, what well, well, I was going to say then, the work on the DVDs that you've done for the subtitles, and we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute, mm. but that is, um, investigative work. So with Time Space Visualizer, was that a case of... Because, I mean, at the time it started, you're just about starting to get things like the Peter Haining books and stuff like that. Yeah. But the Target books that you've had, the Monster book, and even the making of a television series, they've not really given a lot away. So when you start in TSV, is TSV like a journey of discovering new things about the television program? And how do you go about discovering things about the television program? It I think
1: it's a very evolving thing, isn't it? I mean you can I mean most of the issues at T S V are, are are archived online, so you can go back and read the early efforts and go, Oh god, that wasn't very good <laughs> But um I mean in the early days we would have been reliant on what was available. Like you say, we would have been reading fanzines from overseas, we would have been reading the, the Hanning books and uh Um, things like when the, when the, when the 60s came out and the handbooks came out, they were a revelation because they were a great source of new information. And and we were just basically reliant on what was, what, what had already been out there and, and, and sort of stringing together our own sort of ideas about, about how the program would be made based on what we could read from elsewhere because we didn't have any primary sources as such. We didn't have access to, I mean, occasionally we get hold of a script. Someone, someone would send a, someone would, I mean, John Preddle, who's a, who, who's who's another published author, who who a good friend of mine lives in New Zealand. He was a regular contributor to TSV, and he would occasionally get copies of scripts from overseas. So he'd write some really detailed articles about all the deleted scenes and the differences in the scripts. So that was a way in which we looked at primary source material and analysed that. So yeah. that that sort of research was interesting, and I think as TSV went on, we got better at doing that. I think as any fanzine will evolve and, and, and just become better at being analytical. I didn't realise until many years later that many overseas fanzines tend to be a bit more satirical and a bit more humorous. I always took TSV very seriously. It was it was an academic journal from my point of view. And and I didn't realise too much later that a lot of other fanzines were were, were sort of poked fun at the series and, and, and <laughs> satirised it. I just wasn't aware of that. So I wasn't part of the community, you know. I didn't, didn't didn't know how other fanzines operated. So well, I was very, very much like sort of the, the envision or the frame, if you know, the serious end yeah, of yeah. A, a fanzine production was what I was sort of aiming at.
0: But, I mean, you did it for 20 years. So over those 20 years, you're, well, I mean, you started it at university, and by the mm. time you finished it, you've long gone out of university. Oh, absolutely, yeah, definitely. So it must have occupied different places in your life over that period of time. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. I I I I can look back at issues now, and it sort of brings back memories of where I was at that time, and who, you know, what job I had, and what relationship I was in, and all that sort of thing. It's all, it's like a diary of my life without actually sort of laying out the details. It, it's a memory trigger, if you know what I mean. If I look at an issue, I can remember putting it together and where I was living and who was helping yeah, me, yeah. and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's 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 a personal journey, I guess. But um, there's a lot of people involved. I didn't. I mean, by the end, I would only be writing one article for each issue, and the issues are about a hundred pages long, so they were quite substantial for issues. And How often
0: did it come out? because you say seventy-nine over about twenty years? That's um, seventy-six
1: issues, yeah.
0: Um, it, seventy-six, it, yeah. At,
1: at its height, it was coming out six times a year, once every two months. By the end, we were only getting an issue out once a year because just everyone's time and, and it was right. so poor and. And, and I mean, it was just a struggle to get contributions from people. So, and that's really what killed it off in the end. Is it just every everyone who who was really good at writing for it had so many other things going on that we just couldn't get everyone together to to contribute anything. So it just it just time got drawn out and drawn out and drawn out until just no one had any enthusiasm for, for the contributing. band
0: broke up. Really? Yeah,
1: yeah. And and to be honest, that's fair enough. I mean. People like Rob Sherman, for instance. I mean, you know, they've they've got professional jobs as well, and yeah. and he, I think Rob in particular had a, had an opportunity to get the uh, the stuff that he'd been writing for for TSV published professionally. He'd started writing for the the um for the television series with Daleks. So he wasn't so comfortable critiquing other people's episodes. Mm. So, and all different reasons for different people, but of you know, Rob Adam Christopher, whom I mentioned, was the editor at the end of the run of the TSV. He'd got commissions to write books, so he no longer had time to spend his own personal time on editing a fanzine. We all had reasons for, for not continuing on, but it just it all got too hard. And it was about that time that that I got the commission to to work on the DVDs as well. So it's kind of like, no, this is I need to this needs to occupy my time, so. We had had to just sort of let it go, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, just before we go on to talking about the DVDs, there is one other thing that, well, this is a funny thing that um, I suppose a lot of people don't really realise, but the Target books, Mm. now, like the television series, there are a few missing stories there too. Well, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? Mm.
1: What we call the missing, the, story. The, the missing targets? shall we call them for for one? Yeah, yeah, um,
3: yeah.
0: But I mean, if you knew about this, this was like a really odd thing. But anyway, yes, you go on tell the story.
1: Well, I mean, I, I'm a, like many many fans. I'm an avid target collector from from way back. I mean, as I mentioned earlier earlier on, this was the way in which I actually got to experience a lot of Doctor Who stories. And so the target books meant so much to me when I was growing up. And, and the dream of owning a complete set of every every story was one of those sort of goals that I had in, in life was just to own every story as a target book. Yeah. And obviously, as we all well know, they they got so close and yet so far, there were five missing by the end. We were talking about Pirate Planet, City of Death, Shada, Resurrection of the Daleks and Revelation of the Daleks, and the five that were not part of the the target set they just never had been published and so I had the idea that oh why don't we just novelize them ourselves and do them as fanzines so myself and John Prattle whom I mentioned before we managed to get hold of um, a video copy of Sharda uh, we transcribed it we novelized it later on we got hold of a copy of the rehearsal script so we were able to redo the novelization uh, we managed to get hold of scripts, we managed to get hold of videos and transcribe stuff, add in extra deleted scenes, and, and over time we managed to get a set of five target novel, you know, missing targets. They are, they are fanzine sized novelizations done as amateur productions. Yeah. But done to the same length as a target book in the sense of, you know, the same level of detail. And they just filled in those, those, those gaps and, and they sold you know, like any fanzine, they were non profit obviously but they they got so much interest from overseas, so many people mail ordered them from me and Unfortunately, this came back to bite us because um without naming any names, one of the interested copyright holders shall we say um got right. in got in touch uh, having seen these books um because what had happened was that um, certain, um, sci-fi retailers in the UK had bought the books off me and then obviously put them on the shelves and at a, at a considerable market. Oh,
0: really? Markup. Yeah.
1: Wow. And so they were selling these books for an enormous amount of money. We'd never sold them for profit. I, I'd always operated TSV and its associated with fanzines, completely non-profit, completely above board, stated that, made it very clear. And, and unfortunately that you can't, you can't govern the resale market. You know people yeah. people can buy something off you and resell it for as much as they think they can get for it so these fa- these these missing targets that we'd done were not common in the uk. They were hard to get hold of, so the people who did get hold of them could resell them from quite some considerable margin, which was unfortunate and then eBay came along and then obviously people put them up on eBay and people also would start photocopying them themselves and put them up on eBay, so they were like yeah. not, not even our originals, they were someone else's reproductions of our books. So the worst example I found of this on eBay was where someone had taken my name off and put their own name on the book. That was that was <laughs> flabbergasting. Flabbergasting! Wow, it was my book, but they put their name on it. <laughs> but that is you know, quite it's, I don't know, I don't own copyright in the in the in the story or anything, so it was very no. hard. It was I, I, I battled eBay for a long time, but eventually, to their credit, they took that down. So because I had all the paper trail to show that hey, that I'd written this, you know, not him, but um. But yeah, to get back to it, so this copyright holder got in touch and was a bit aggrieved, understandably, I could see their point of view, and they basically it was a, started out as a cease and desist and was talked down to a like, well look, if you put not for resale on them, then we'll let you keep going, but it just became too awkward and too hard and I didn't really want to piss anyone off, so I said, look, I'm going to take these out of production, I'm going to stop selling them, but what's going to happen is that the value of them is going to go sky high because they're no longer being printed. Yeah. so I will make them freely available online everyone can download them for their own use no money will exchange hands whatsoever they're basically freely available and to this day they are still freely available on the Who the fan club website everyone can download those novelizations of course what's happened now is that of course the official novelizations are coming out you know they've done, they've done city of death and shada and they're about to do pirate planet and Possibly, I don't know. Maybe the two Dalek stories will be done. So they've kind of gone into history. They're no longer as relevant as they once were. But um, but still, you know, it's yeah, they, nice were, they thing were important to be involved the in. They were important yeah. at the time. They, 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 we we had a large readership of these these books, and we were, uh, uh, there were a lot of copies sold of them. And, and and like I say, because other people were reproducing them, I don't know how many people, I don't know how many copies are out there. There are probably hundreds, and I don't know, lots, thousands, maybe. Who knows. One one of the authors was, was David Bishop, of course, who went on to to, yes, to write write for the BBC. So that didn't hurt him at all. <laughs> he, he wrote well, The no. of Pirate Planet.
0: Well, as as you know from names like Rob Sherman and Paul Cornell, working on fanzines, working in fan things, can be a stepping stone. Yeah,
1: I did worry for a time that because once the BBC uh, became aware of what we were doing and it all got a bit awkward... I did worry that my name would be Mud, if you know what I mean, that, that they, yeah. I would be blacklisted. I, I, I had that fear for a little while. They thought, oh crap, are they going to Are they going to come after the club? Are they going to come after TSV? What's going to happen? Is this going to escalate? Fortunately, it didn't go anywhere. It's a certain little bit of diplomacy meant that it, it, it all settled down re- pretty quickly. But, but yeah, I was, uh, there was a bit of fear for a few days that I thought, oh, have I really, really bitten off more than I can chew here?
0: Well, that's a nice segue then. It didn't stop me getting the job writing the subtitles for the dvds no no it didn't fortunately (laughs) but which stories did you do i did eight of
1: them i did oh the first one i did was plantify and after doing that one i was sort of pegged as a davison era researcher because i guess it made sense that if you'd done a story set in a certain era that you knew the sort of what was going on with the production team at the time and what, what sort of process? using? Yeah, yeah. So it made sense to do the surrounding stories. So when, when Frontios and Resurrection of the Daleks came up, I was pegged for those. And, um, Kezar and Azani, when they did that as a uh, special edition, I, um, yeah, and Re- Resurrection was a special edition as well. A- yeah. And then Awakening. And then we ran out of Davison stuff, you know, that was, that all been done. And so then I went on to do Dragonfire and Venus on Varos, and then I did the, um, the, the, pod, the webcast one, um, Scream of the Shellka. So those, are my, those course, are
0: my eight. yeah, yeah. Those, those are the so, eight that I did. So for people who aren't quite sure, what is involved?
1: I get a um, copy of the story with a time code burnt into it, which shows the, the, the time elapsed in, in hours, minutes, seconds, and frames, you know, 24 frames to a second. And I have to write a subtitle script which tells the subtitle person when the subtitle appears on screen to the the exact frame and when it comes off screen to the exact frame. Generally they're on screen for about five to seven seconds and I have to tell um, as much information as I can in that, uh, that allotted space about how the story is made. And so I get access to all the original production documentation. I mean there is a as you probably know, there's a, the BBC has a written archives centre at Cavisham, and they have a file for just about every Doctor Who story, which has all the original paperwork. They have all the original scripts, so I would get copies of these sent to me. When when I started out, I I visited the UK. I happened to be in the UK anyway. I didn't make a special visit for this. I happened to be visiting relatives in the UK. So I went and spent time um at Cavisham for one day looking through the files, that was for Plant of Fire and Frontiers, which are the first two I worked on. And then later on, they some, someone would very kindly scan those files for me and send them to me in New Zealand, so I didn't have to make a return trip. Right. So that was fortunate, <laughs> because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to continue doing the job, obviously, because... we would have been backwards the, and forwards, like yeah, nobody's business. Because there are about seven other people writing these subtitles, and all they would do is they'd all just go to Cavisham and book a day there, and they'd go and spend time in the library there looking at the files, whereas I had to sort of get them sent to me here. So I was unusual. I think I was the only... Someone may correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I was the only non-UK person doing this job. I think everyone else was based in the UK doing this work.
0: Well, the fascinating thing about this is you're going to dive into and i suppose in a way you were quite lucky in that you were covering the eighties where a lot of the uh presumably a lot more of the paperwork existed, but you must still have been finding out a lot of stuff that nobody really ever knew about
1: yeah, yeah, the interesting thing about it, and it's it's a it's a double-edged sword because the the approach to it was to forget everything you know basically, yes, yes. because you've, you, you know, as a Doctor Who fan, you've read so much about the making of a story and about what was going on with the production team and everything. You basically had to put all those preconceptions aside. So you had to forget Pixley's archives. You had to forget the um Envision. You had to forget all that stuff that did all the interviews and everything, and just go back to the original paperwork and build up an impression from scratch. Which means that sometimes you arrive at a very different conclusion about what actually went on. There's a very famous story about um, the making of Frontius, I think it is, where one of the um, people who was a Tractator performer um, supposedly um, quit the production because they couldn't stand to be in the costume, when actually what it was is that particular performer chose to go out under a different name on the credits. So, really? <laughs> so what was a long-held belief turns out to be complete bollocks. Um Another thing, too, in Resurrection of the Daleks, the common belief that um, the reason that Terry Malloy had a re-sculpted mask for Davros was because the original mask had decayed, and therefore, you know, they, they had to make a new one. Whereas they spent a long time trying to negotiate with John Friedlander, who had sculpted the original mask, to arrange a fee to take a new casting from his mold, which he'd taken with him when he left the BBC. And they couldn't agree on a price, so they were forced into making a new mask. So, you know, it's one of the things things that have been commonly reported, which turn out to be not true. And it's like i i when you when you actually think about the timeline of it, you go, well, that can't be true, but a long time uh, Doctor Who magazine used to say this sort of thing um that resurrection of the Daleks being fifty minute episodes was a testing ground for season twenty two right you know oh, the, yeah. that was the common yeah. perception of it. No, when you actually look at it the 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 commissioning of season twenty two as fifty minute episodes predated resurrection of the Daleks being being screened in that that format it wasn't a testing ground at all they'd already committed to that format so and
0: resurrection <laughs> was in 250s because of the olympics. winter winter olympics yeah that's yeah right. that's right yeah yeah
1: so that was a last minute thing it, well i not thinking last minute but it would they, they the episodes were originally edited as, as four four parts and then condensed down to two yeah the annoying Telling thing about that story is that my produ- the the production subtitles I did them for the four part version, not the two part version. Whereas the two part version on the disc is the is the default version, so there's no subtitles on it. So going,
0: ah! <laughs> Oh God, yes, of course. <laughs> because it was a
1: very parent. It was a very late. I, I I asked why this was because I I got sent the four episode version, so I had no choice but to, but to use the four episode version because the time codes would have been different, and and so apparently what was going to happen was that the four episode version was going to be on the first disc and the se- the two episode version was going to be on the second disc as the backup version and very late in the day they swapped them around but of course because all the subtitles have been laid down they couldn't they couldn't move them so it was a I wonder of a if
0: they swapped them around for technical reasons because i think there's some law governing i think there's some law governing um the release of material in this country that says you can't mess around with things like that if you're going to re-release it, perhaps? I'm not sure. I'm probably talking I, utter I, rubbish now.
1: I think it was simply that because in the UK that, that <clears throat> the default version is the two-part version because that's how it was transmitted. And the transmitted they, version, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they wanted the transmitted version to be the, the main feature rather than the, the backup disc.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. it was
1: more of an artistic reason more than anything else because I think on the original release of the... I may be wrong about this. Wasn't it a four-part version on the original release of Resurrection of the
0: Daleks? On the VHS. No, no, on the first on DVD the...
1: before they did the special edition. Because I only worked on Ooh, the special edition. Oh, I can't remember.
0: You know. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, I have a feeling. No, you're probably mixed... right actually, mm-hmm. and that would be a good reason for doing the special edition in order to get the, the transmitted version yeah. on there. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. The, the, that's the not strange... a story I go back to all that often. <laughs> I have to confess.
1: I just you should say that the those. those I, those stories I've watched so many times over that it's really hard to watch them now.
0: Because well, I was going to ask that. Because I've... Yeah, both. I've asked both Steve Roberts and Pete, Peter Crocker, can you yeah. actually watch old Doctor Who now? And they just say, no, they can't. Yeah. You know, because they've been, just gone over it so many times, I frame by frame. Re- I
1: have to leave it a very long time before
0: rewatching these things. Yeah, probably about oh, yeah. 20 or 30 years, I should guess. <laughs> well, look, there's one other thing for us to cover. Um, and that is um, your book. Mm. Because, My book. well, I was going to say, when we were talking about the fan novelizations of those target books earlier, that is one of those ideas where you just think, well, how come nobody's ever thought of that before? Because it just seems so obvious. But it, of course it takes, it takes even the most obvious ideas. You still have to wait for somebody to come along who's going to have that idea. Mm. Right. Mm. And your book, The Comic Strip Companion. Yeah. That is one of, that is another one of those things where you just think, well, uh, of course. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's one of those books.
1: It grew out of a love of television program guides and and obviously Doctor Who being a big part of that. You know, reading the the television companion, the discontinuity guide, and and, and a really quite detailed episode guides like that and, you know, the About Time ones and things like that. And just going, these are really quite, you know, these are great. And thinking, oh, wouldn't it be great to write one of these? But obviously, I wanted to write a Doctor Who one. That was my main interest. And I was thinking, well, hold on, no one's ever really covered the comic strips all that well. So so I, I, I devised this idea. It was originally going to be a TSV article. This is how it originally started. I was going to do a, a comic strip article for TSV, and then I got so much material together for that, and I thought, well, hold on, this is going to be a multi-part thing, and I started drafting it, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger because the comic strips is so much to write about. Yeah, that, yeah. That I, that, that it, just, it, it, it just got out of hand after a while. And so I thought, well, hold on, this has got to be a book. And I still, still book singular note. <laughs> so I was still un, un, underestimating here.
0: And, yeah. and well, I was going to say, just yeah. to but in briefly, there's yeah. got to be. More comic strips, probably by quite some distance, than there ever have been television stories. I'm sure. By now, been. I'd have thought, yeah. Well, even
1: even back in the '60s, obviously there were comic strips all year round. Whereas, of course, you know the, the the television series took breaks, and then obviously going into Pertwee era, you've only got like sort of five television stories a year, but you've got say double the number of comic strips. But, oh, of um, course, yeah. yeah. I
0: was the uh, mm.
1: yeah. The thing the thing for me was the big stumbling block I had for a long time is that. I collected all the Doctor Who magazines that I'd missed, because as I mentioned before, I only got into it in 1984, so I built up a back collection, so I've got every issue of Doctor Who weekly going right back to issue one now, so I could write about the 80s comic strips easily, but I kind of felt that wasn't the right place to start, you know, it's kind of cheating if you start at Iron Legion and go forward from there, much as I could have done that. I kind of felt like if I'm going to write about the comic strips properly, I've got to start right back in 1964 and TV comic starts with the, you know, starts running the strip and the TV Century 21 Dalek strip and, and the annuals and everything that happened in the 1960s and 70s that I really, that really needed to be covered. And particularly so because it had never been covered all that well, I felt, or any great detail.
0: Was so there ever, was there, a, was there actually a place where you could go where, you know, maybe some online resource or whatever, which actually had a list of every single Doctor Who comic strip.
1: Well, there've been—I don't know if you ever got it. It was that short-lived um, class, Doctor Who Classic Comics. They published lists of the comics and they reprinted some of them. So that was my earliest exposure to the to that era of the the comic strips. So they, they they reprinted some of the colorized ones. You know, they colorized some of yes, the stories yeah. and, and they reprinted all the countdown and TV action ones, which were great to see. All those. But it was a short lived comic and they didn't do all of them by any means, so and they did like you say, they did do lists of, of, of all the comics to it. So you're aware of just how many there were. So I had a basic idea. And yeah, at least like, you
0: had a good idea to start yeah. with then, because yes. otherwise that's the kind of thing where you can just look <laughs> at it and think, Oh my god, where do you even begin? Yeah.
1: The 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 point where I finally go felt thought to myself Yes, I can do this. is when I was searching for something online, something Doctor Who related online, and quite by chance, the 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 res you know the search result threw up this this random mention of a online group of Doctor Who comic strip collectors. It was a private Yahoo group, and I sent them a message going, "Oh, it sounds really interesting," and they let me in to join their group. And what it was is that they each had some issues of TV, comic, and Countdown, and all the various comic strips that had featured Doctor Who in the 60s and 70s. And by scanning there and sharing their scans, they were building up a complete run. But they hadn't completed their run. I had a few issues myself, which they didn't have, and also a friend of mine had a fairly good collection of the 70s issues, and so I borrowed his collection and scanned those. So I got involved in helping to build up that complete run and we got ever so close to, we were missing by, by the time we'd, you know, combined everything and hunted down everything, we missed about two issues that we needed to, to complete the run from 1964 through to 1979, which was from the beginning wow. of the TV comic run to the end of the TV comic run. That's, that's what defines that, that 15 year period. You,
0: did you never get those last two then?
1: Yes, I did. Because oh. when, when, when I approached, uh, cause like this time I thought, I'm going to write. I'm going to write a guidebook about this because there's so much stuff that I was experiencing for the first time. I thought, yes, I've finally got to do this. So I approached um, Telos, who I, who I'd interviewed for for uh, you know Stephen James Walker and David Derryhow. I'd interviewed them for for um, TSV some years earlier. They knew me. They'd written some stuff for me. So I approached them and said, hey, this would be a really good idea. Why don't you do you know you should do a comic strip companion to go to sit alongside your television companion. Episode guide, and and uh, they said, yes, 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 it's a really good idea. Send us, send us some, you know, a draft chapter. And I said, there's one problem. I'm missing two, you know, two two issues of the comic strip. And Stephen James Walker goes, I've got those. I'll send you scans.
0: Oh, of course, I so should know, shouldn't the, have known. <laughs> That was
1: the fight. that was that is the clincher. I thought, right, now that I've got those, I've got to do it. I've committed now.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So, so yeah, and 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 as the book. As I wrote the book, more and more people came forward. I mean, I have to credit particularly Richard Bignall, who's one of the um, my fellow researchers on the DVDs. He also wrote a lot of the production subtitles. But Richard found in the um, written archives an extensive collection of um, original 60s paperwork for the, for the comic strips. So uh, that really bolstered the material in the book in terms of exploring what had been planned behind the scenes. And, and, and it just made the book so much more detailed than it would have otherwise been if I just like commenting on what I could see in the comic strips themselves, which was what I originally planned. I was just going to do a running commentary of, of 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 the comic strips rather than, you know, exploring the background. But it became yeah, yeah. that much more involved because I had all the access to all this original material, all this documentation, all the going back and forth between the BBC because the BBC had to approve each individual comic strip story. So no matter how how corny or hokey they were in the 1960s, and you go, "Oh, that's really terrible," the BBC was signing off on
0: them, which is the well, yeah. Know. That it, that's the thing is, if they were published anywhere, they were in some ways an official. They product. were official,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah and, and there is actually correspondence from the script editor who was usually responsible for doing the sign-off. So you've got people like Jerry Davis saying this story is acceptable. So this is the script editor of <laughs> yeah. Doctor Who signing off on a story which, when you read it, you go, this isn't Doctor Who, he's, he's, you know, it, it's, it's. there's something quite wrong about this story, <laughs> but there you go, it's getting the tick. And there are actual stories that got pushed back, that got rejected, so, you know, it, it uh, there So it's not like
0: the, there wasn't any kind of discretion going on at all. <laughs> no,
1: it just seems to be very piecemeal in terms of when, when, when they could be bothered to, like, sort of say, hold on, no, this isn't quite right, you need to rewrite this. And I also managed to track down a number of the original people who worked on the strip. Um, Roger Noel Cook, who wrote a lot of the Troughton era stuff, he, I managed to find him living in, um, oh, somewhere in Europe anyway, Spain I think, and, uh, and he was a fascinating character, just to sort of just show him this paperwork and these stories that he hadn't looked at in, in decades, and just to get his reaction to that was just great and some of the other artists and writers who, who were still alive. It was just fascinating to talk to these people who'd, who'd worked on the strips. So it all helped just to make the book that much more detailed.
0: So that's the first volume, which runs basically from the 60s up to the beginning of Doctor Who Weekly. Mm-hmm. And is there going to be a second volume? There
1: is. I am I am approaching, hopefully, the, the end, I say hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, of the second volume, which covers picks up where the last one ends off. So this is Iron Legion with you know, the first uh Doctor Who Weekly comic strip, and goes through to a, a arbitrary cut off point in nineteen ninety, just before Ace joins the comic strip, and it goes off on its end because there's no on its own because there's no more television series for it to follow. So it goes off in its own direction. So Andrew Cartwell comes in and he starts writing for it and it, it just sort of gets its own identity. So I'm really covering this volume it's 1979, the TV, 1990. yeah. Yeah, so it's a TV, it's a TV, years. Uh, TV years, if you like, and of the 80s. And then there'll be a third volume, which will be from 1990 through to when, um, McGann ends in 2005.
0: Are you, and are you going to even contemplate doing a fourth volume? Because it all goes I, a bit mental yeah, again I, after that, doesn't oh, it?
1: Once Tenant turns up in, in 2006, there are so many spin off comic strips titles. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's Doctor Who Adventures, there's uh, the IDW stuff, there's Titan. It's just an enormous amount of stuff. But, I mean, uh, that's a possibility. If I get that far, I just don't. I, I, <laughs> I uh, my, my ambition is to get to the end of them again at least. Uh, that, that's, that's as far ahead as I'm looking at this point. But yeah, I'm open. But to, to be continue. honest, as yeah. long,
0: as long as you get those done, for what it is, for what people would expect, and for what people to hope for, those would be the important years. I would have thought so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, is the first one still available? Ah, uh, yeah, because that understand. came out what four years ago something like that is it uh, yeah it's about four years 2012 Yeah. So yeah four years ago. ago there you yeah.
1: go yeah and um yeah it's still as, as far as i know it's still in print yeah i still get royalty statements from it so yeah it's, it's still selling yeah well we've had
0: uh, david on here before but telos.co.uk is where people need to go to look it up that's
1: right support support the publisher order directly uh. <laughs>
0: And there's plenty of other good things on the Telos site.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: How far away, then, is the second one, do you think?
1: Oh, I've been trapped into giving an answer before. It's turned out to be wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'd, I like going, I'd like to say I'm going to finish it next year, but that's just as... I, I'm juggling a you know, fairly heavy workload. My wife and I run a sci-fi shop in, here in Auckland, which keeps us very, very busy. So that's sucking a lot of my time at the moment. So when I can find the time, I will definitely get back into it and... And and then try and finish it off, but I'm hopeful of getting it finished next year.
0: Well, that's good to hear, and I'm uh, I can imagine actually, given that that covers the early years of Doctor Who magazine, that'll be rather popular with a lot of people.
1: I hope so. I hope so. I mean, it's always the hope that you know you put so much effort into into writing something and take so many years to write it that people are actually going to read it and enjoy it. That's that's the always the hope.
0: Well, Paul. Thanks for coming along and sharing all this with me today. It's been good to talk about all these things and it's you know sometimes it's good to talk about because I mean a lot of the time on this on this podcast we we'll review what's going on on the telly, we we'll review what's happened on the telly in the past. But sometimes it's just nice to go off on all these different tangents and talk about all these other sorts of things.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean in our our experience in here in New Zealand is it's so different, you know, when you when you talk about the early years of Doctor Who in the UK, and we just have a totally different experience here. So, to get to share that with viewers, is always, always, is always a pleasure.
0: What a real patchwork, by the sound of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, um, I think coming up next week, uh, we may have our season 17 retrospective or no actually, oh god, I do this do you know, I try and do this at the end of every episode (laughs) try and remember what's coming next I think actually our next episode might be a review of the first couple of episodes of Class
1: Well that's coming up shortly, isn't it?
0: Yeah, very shortly so actually yeah, I think that's coming up next week and it'll probably be season 17 the week afterwards. Oh, I love season 17 Well, you'll find out what we think of it (laughs) in a couple of weeks time. (laughs) (laughs) But until then, thank you, Paul. Thank you. And, uh, well, until next time, I was JR. And I was Paul. And we'll speak again soon.
2: occurred to me that uh, before this podcast started and all these things are still blinking away that uh, Mike Tucker and I were having a really confidential conversation and you will have recorded it <laughs> so <laughs> could I ask you please, please, you hate that? I just suddenly sat down and saw <laughs> these recordings and thought, yeah we were over there, you will have heard of all of that, <laughs> <laughs>
0: No. I'm going to stop you
2: there. Hang on. Stop Sorry, so please don't. Can I sit with you? Or if you do, don't attribute it to me.
4: That's
5: your wish. Just
4: Nick who? <laughs>
5: Make it sound like a Dalek. Yeah, like that. They, they won't guess.
2: They'll it's never it. know.
5: <laughs>
4: <laughs> it's like an old BBC thing, isn't it? When you'd forget sometimes and you'd be standing on the floor and you'd say something and you suddenly think, that's just gone everywhere yeah you know
2: <laughs> well I used to uh shock David Tennant when I um because doing the Dalek voices I, I had a feed of everyone else's mic yeah. and they tend to radio mic everyone now as well as have a, a boom in there so unless I have a very um we went through a period where there was a sound engineer who was very who would look at me and go and turn the things down so that you can't listen to them but the guy we've had for a few years now he just leaves everything up you know but uh, and certainly at the, this particular recording, it was Daleks in Manhattan. and um, <laughs> Like with a New they, York accent, And they were being stoiman. <laughs> yeah, being
4: stoiman. Yeah, I, I just love but, that but idea. But
2: David was having a conversation with the other members of the cast completely, uh, well, you know, about 400 yards away from me, in between takes. And I honestly can't remember the actress in question about whether a certain actress was alive or dead.
4: How can you tell?
2: <laughs> <laughs> and they were saying, I don't know, is she? I don't know, what was she? And they were like taking votes, you see. And then when that particular bit was over, I wandered over to him and I said, I think she's alive. And he went, what? And I said, I've, I'm listening to everything. And he was like, oh my God. You know, so, a weird prospect of the Dalek man. <coughs> it
4: does happen everywhere. though, doesn't it? Working out with certain actors, are they still with us or not? And I find about every three days I go through this thing of now... And you're talking about this when you think, wait a minute, are they still with us?
2: Yeah.
4: Just think people are talking about us like that.
2: I know. Is she still alive? Well, I sometimes think that when I'm directing people in the studio.
4: <laughs> he said, looking straight at me. <laughs> Is she still alive? <laughs> My God, how does she do it? It's amazing, really.
2: You do sometimes have that thing where Toby in the studio will sometimes uh, do something erroneously, technically, and... As the director, you're talking away and the actors actually can't hear you. He's pressed the button yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. And you're talking away and the actors are sort of in the booth and maybe, and you can't hear them and they're, maybe one of them, one of the other actors is talking to and they're nodding. And so you're talking to them and they seem to be listening. You go, okay, right, well let, let's go for that then. And cue. And then nothing happens. And, <laughs> and cue. Let is the matter with these people? And then Toby goes, Oh, God, sorry. I say, Sorry, I've been talking to you all for 15 minutes and you didn't hear anything. Right. And of then it.
4: one person, usually me, says, What page are we on? <laughs> right? And he said, Well, I've just talked. I said, No, you didn't. It was just quiet in
2: here. Mind you, you do assure me that you've got the pages. I'm, on. I'm,
4: I have a page from, I have number blindness. I have a lot of blindness, but <laughs> numbers are specifically, which is why when I wrote, I didn't bother with numbers, darling. It's not necessary. You know, go whatever order you want to go in. That's as right as I am. Yeah, yeah. throw it. (laughs) Yeah, I've got to talk to you about that later. (laughs) Anyway, that's another conversation I need to have with you. Um, But I worked out this incredible... Because I thought, I cannot be defeated by this. Because when you're doing these big scripts that we're doing, you're going to be doing things out of order. So you have to put X amount of pages there and X amount... And then you do three pages in the middle there. Which... To everybody else seems to be perfectly normal. For me, it is a, a nightmare. It actually causes me to hyperventilate quietly. And I, so I thought, I'm not going to be beaten by this. You know, this is, this, this is not it. And, because I get away with it sometimes. Anyway, got, I don't know why. It's whenever I'm with you, it becomes <laughs> a major disaster. And I thought, I'm not going to let this happen. And I have worked out this. It, I, I sat up at night trying to work out how I could do with. I had scripts on the floor working out. And no, truly, when I do something, I work it. I know. And I have finally worked out it, and it involves lots of bits of coloured paper. That's all I'm prepared to share with you till we meet again.
2: The pages thing I've discovered being 54, 55 at the end of this month, it happens at the age of 50, I've discovered. Because for for any criticism I give you, I'm exactly the same now when I'm behind but the But I've microphone. never
4: been able to do it and I'm 70 now, so I figure it's time to change. <laughs> In October! By the way... The 14th! Just I write it down that. in your diaries. All gifts gratefully received. Thank you. <laughs> Send them to the home matron. Sure, will make sure I get them. Thank you. Perhaps you'd like to
2: introduce oh, <laughs> somebody else.
4: Don't <laughs> just introduce me.
6: My, my name's Simon. I'm on the Blue Box podcast for Starburst magazine. And um, <laughs> when I asked, I'm so
4: sorry, darling, You should sorry, have said a, something. I was
6: offered the panels, and I said, "Which ones are free?" And, and I saw this one. I thought, "Oh, yes, yeah, brilliant." And they said, "Yeah, it's fine." Then I realised. Yeah, it's because the panel runs itself. Exactly. Yeah. So, I'll see you later. No. <laughs> I you have anything. Yeah. But you're no, on my yeah.
4: peripheries. If you're on the side of me, you don't exist. You have to oh, come well, up and look at me and let me know like that just you're there. I exist on a quantum level, don't I? know you are have. Let's not
3: go there.
6: Um, firstly, well, I think everyone knows who you are, but if you give a brief
2: introduction from each of you, please. That was mine. Was very Brilliant. brilliant. Uh, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> there is a in that are you being served remake i thought there was a brilliant joke in there when he was said well, yeah there, was. He there said, was there was a couple <laughs> yeah i quite liked it anyway i hated the original so i quite liked it So the, did I, yeah, yeah. i'm i just gonna say
4: isn't it awful it's blasphemy isn't it but i know
2: but i hate it i thought I can't it was rubbish but I, that. I, that's why i liked the the remake because anything would be better um, but um, there was a brilliant joke where the guy said he said have you had any experience in uh, gentlemen's retail and he said well do you want the long answer or the oh, short yes. answer so just the short answer he said I have. And he went, oh, well, that's brilliant. Blah, 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 blah. By the way, what was the long answer? Big I have not had it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I thought that's a really good joke. Yeah. If I'd anyway. stayed
4: for that bit, <laughs> I would have been all right. It
2: gets better as it goes along. And John, Charis No, no, I did
4: watch some of it, but I just find it all very difficult. I, yeah. I think classics of that nature are... I will do what you want in a minute. Still <laughs> Sorry, answer. That was hello, story.
2: hello, I'm Nick Briggs. I am uh, co-executive producer of Big Finish Productions and uh, the voice of the Daleks and other... Monsters. Thank you. you. I'm trying to
4: remember. <laughs> who are you today? Cute. I don't know. I who do I want to be today? You
6: can be who you like. We don't
2: mind. <laughs> don't say, I'd like don't to let be the monsters out.
4: <laughs> I want to be Florence Naismith. That's who I'm going to be today for at least three minutes. And when I'm fed up with being Florence because she's an absolute pain in the bottom, the woman. I'm going to be Katie Manning, but I don't quite know who she is. Joe? Joe? Is that you Joe? <laughs> <laughs> so, so occasionally I'll be the doctor. <laughs> and they upchuck Chuck and all that, and last the girl's with it. I don't know, really, who I am. But actually, I'm Katie Manning, and I'm very thrilled to be here. Thank you.
5: Have you finished?
4: <laughs> you need to lie down now? I do. You? I do. Okay.
5: <laughs> and I'm Richard Bigelow. Uh, I edit nothing at the end of the lake, Uh, written for Doctor Who magazine, and did an awful lot of work on the DVD range when it was still going, so now sadly defunct.
2: Did you do some of the texts? I did
5: production subtitles, I did research, I
2: love love the subtitles. Oh, what a stink to write, though. Really? That must be like
6: working for CFAX. (laughs) <laughs> people who um, remember, remember CFAX so.
5: it, it was honestly one of those jobs that you think would be easy and it's a nightmare no I wouldn't nightmare. have thought it would be um, easy at all no. uh, and, and Andrew's not in today, he was here earlier on Andrew Pixley, who we all know and love from doing the archives did one Delta and the Band of Men and said, not doing that again because <laughs> he found it in, impossible to do uh, you are you are writing to time codes, so you are writing to twenty fourths of a second. Mm-hmm. You have to fit everything in, and you're given stories that you sometimes go, no, please. Um, but you, you can find stuff out. You can research stuff. Yourself. But boy, you can find stuff out. Yeah, yeah. and and that's the really fascinating bit. Mm-hmm. You go along and you're able to dig stuff out that. You know, I, I, um, the very first one I did was The War Machines. Um, so you, you go along to the BBC's Written Archive Centre, have a look through the production paperwork if it exists. Uh, and there's a letter in there from a mum the young boy who was invited along to Lime Grove Studios at the time to watch the filming for a day. Um, and I managed to track him down. Uh, he, he's now a doctor himself. Um but, yeah, it had some really lovely memories of mm. just sort of being there and William Hartnell feeding him McVitie's fruitcake uh, in the <laughs> restaurant. And, uh, you, you know, but you, you're able to dig out lots of, lots of really interesting little bits of information. Right, yeah. um, and, and it was nice, actually, that uh, I, I don't know if anyone's seen, but uh, there's a website called Dalek 6388. Oh, yes. I have. Uh, and it, it logs all things Dalek. Um, and a few weeks ago someone wrote to them and they own the model that Shawcraft made, that made the, the one foot model uh, of the Dalek that was used in the end of the first episode of The Chase where it comes up through the, the sand, comes up through the sand dune um, and there's, there's pictures of it on their, on their website, you can go and have a look um, and y- you know we, that's one of the things that I was trying to research when I did the subtitles for The Chase because uh, in the frame, many years ago, twenty-five years ago, or so, yeah, oh, the fanzine, yeah, the yeah. Fanzine, yeah. Um, Ray Cusick did an interview, and he happened to mention, oh, I was in, I was in the toy museum in Brighton one day, and I saw this thing sitting there in the, in an exhibition, uh, and of course you, we tried to find it then. Um, it, it turned out it wasn't quite a toy museum; it was a doll museum. There is a toy museum in Brighton, but that came along later, which sort of rather confused things, but. It's turned up now, and it's a gorgeous model,
2: absolutely gorgeous model. So it's like a detective story, in a way, finding out all this stuff. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because I
6: imagine you have obvious entry points. You have, well, obviously, war machines, post office tower. Oh, let's look up some stuff on post office tower and see what relates to it.
5: Yeah, Uh, I I, I was saying earlier on, um, when I was talking with uh, David Howe, um, you know, when you go to research anything, you go to the, go down the obvious routes first of all so you go to all your primary research material and interviews that people have done in the past and you look through all that uh, and then you start having to go off tangentially uh, you know and start thinking laterally about things. I love that and, word tangential um, <laughs> nice yeah <you> <laughs> and uh, and you go down finding other uh, other routes and exploring other routes you know and, and there's, there's lovely Little bits and pieces that you can pick out. I was doing the one of the last ones I did was for the Green Death for the reissue of that. Um, and we got to the bit where uh, they're all sitting around having the dinner party, and there's there's a line. Hello, yes, you remember the Green Death? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the short answer. And and they're all sitting yes. around having the dinner party, yes. and there's a line about someone tootling, Jessie tootling along on her flute. Yes. Uh, and I, I, I can't, can't for the life of me remember, <laughs> remember her name. But it? No, it um, I, I, managed, I, I thought, oh, I wonder if she's still around. And I'm sit- literally sitting there writing it, looked her up on the internet, found her, got in contact with her that morning, and she regaled me with all these stories coming back that she'd been in the East Tower of um, the BBC and Barry Letts had happened to be wandering around and she was just doing something because she'd been on Top of the Pops or something. Uh, tootling her flute. Tootling her flute. Barry has seen her, got her in because exactly. she thought she'd be good for the background, and she remembered... I can, now, I can't remember... I can't remember if she said she did it, or if you did it, Katie, but they had a tank, fish tank, full of real maggots in the studio yeah. when they're doing the model work, and someone knocked them over. Uh. So they went everywhere, but of course they couldn't gather them all up. So we subsequently. They turn into flies <laughs> and there's flies all over the studio. Oh, so Yeah, but but it's it's I wasn't it's knocking, they weren't
4: knocked out, I was setting them free. Oh no, yeah. <laughs> Liberation
5: <laughs> for flies. Sorry,
4: but I thought this was you know, it was Ugh. it was terrible to see them all so overcrowded.
6: Sure, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe how the time is flying along. I'm gonna get one question in and then I'll open up to everyone else. Okay. Yep. But what I was going to ask is, the is is will you shut up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we recently did a podcast which is a discussion about being a fan and we found the most interesting thing is defining that point when you stop just liking something like Doctor Who and then actually becoming what someone might call a fan. Yeah. Oh so, yeah. Is there a point you remember thinking, "Oh, do you know, I'm a fan? I have
4: to say I'm not a fan." No, of I can such. imagine. You know, I mean I I grew up with a lot of wonderful television. <laughs> And one of the most amazing things that I grew up that was like, wow, loving this, um, was indeed, you know, the very early days, in fact, the beginning mm. of Doctor Who. Mm. I mean,
6: were you a fan of anything, anything in particular? Is there something you're, you would call yourself a fan?
4: I don't. I think fandom goes one step beyond where I go. I have... Massive admiration. I love watching different actors. I love, you know, I loved it when special effects, you know, and things like Doctor Who and and Quatermass and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it, it's very hard for me because I'm not a fan. But I mean, like, I watch all the new Doctor Who stuff and I absolutely mm. love it. But what I do love is I love fans mm. because I love whatever it is that has brought them into this situation and everybody has the most amazing story to go with it and it just makes me so happy And you know i mean i think it's always very obvious that i just love being at these things because i love the fans i love who they are i love what what it is that they've found
2: for me i think the the point of where i i felt, i'm a
4: fan of yours
2: thanks my darling. I'm, I'm, a, yours. I'm a huge fan of yours I'm a huge fan of both of oh, I'm a huge fan of <laughs> No, I'm bigger than you. <laughs> I'm more huge. Um, <laughs> that's my new You'll way. never be bigger than me. <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> sorry. That point where, where, for me, I think, as a youngster, where it tipped over from just liking it, because, you know, I liked Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Tarzan, you know, Thunderbird. All, all those things I really loved and had toys, yeah. but I could miss them. Yeah. Yes. But with Doctor Who, of course, you, <clears throat> as we olders, oldsters always say, you um, you couldn't record it in those days, except maybe if you put a tape recorder beside the, side and of the television. And you had to wait had a bit.
4: week, which was exciting. So
2: my experience of thinking, oh, you know, I really do love this program, is when because my parents, you know, uh, were constantly trying to break me of Doctor Who. <laughs> you know, they they thought it's just even even rehab. Now, even now my mum is a bit sort of she's saying and I say oh I'm doing something on whatever don't she go oh what is it and I go doctor and she goes oh, okay yeah. <laughs> uh, but if I say oh it's um, I'm recording uh, an episode of Dan Dead she goes oh oh that sounds very exciting because it's not doctor not Doctor mm-hmm. Bloody Who mm-hmm. as it was called in our household Doctor Bloody Who. The return of the bloody darlings. My brother used to say. Oh, what's it called this week? The return. You know, and it was all that. And but so they used to sort of take me out for the day on a Saturday, Aww. and then not. You know, I was thinking, we won't get home in time, and I used to get into such a state yeah. that they'd just take me. You know, and from then on, they knew they just couldn't because it would upset me so much not to see Doctor Who. And that's when I realised, I think, that I'm a Doctor Who fan. It means so much to me that I I cannot miss it. And even now, I don't always watch Doctor Who when it goes out live now, but when I... When it's going out and I'm not watching it, I'm a bit sort of. But it's better. A bit like an alcoholic who hears the pub opening next door. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's kind of could do with a pint now. You mm-hmm. know, I could do. But with don't a bit you of
3: find
4: doctor? it's better yeah. live? You know, like that when it, when I say live, when it actually goes out rather yes, than. Yes,
2: but quite often it's not possible.
4: You know, assume things, the position. It. I always say at that <laughs> particular time. Just one little thing I say before. Um, I understand you so much more now. Uh, um, is it? <laughs> I had the problem that my father was on radio when Doctor Who was being shown, so there was a huge thing in our house of whether the telly was louder or daddy on the radio. Wow,
3: wow, yeah. You know, what
4: can I (laughs) so that wasn't easy. Sport one, I'm afraid. And there was me trying
2: to watch Doctor Who. Well, we had problems when my father suddenly decided he likes that series Kung Fu. Remember that? Oh,
4: with Keith Carradine.
2: Some Carrot was it Keith Carradine? Yeah, I think of Uh, it was a Caradine. Caradine, Caradine. It was David. Caridine, David. 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 David.
4: Oh, David I was yeah. close. That
2: was his father. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, <laughs> ITV decided to try and beat Doctor Who with it. Needless, no, to, say, needless it? to say, they didn't. But, you know, so we had, we had to buy a portable television, which in those days, having two televisions oh, in yeah. the household, especially if we were not a rich family, um, you know, I had to, so it was upstairs. Also, during the power cuts, you know, oh. the 70s, uh, we had the um, the portable television wired up to a battery upstairs, a car battery, yeah. just in case the power went. <laughs> yeah, so it would be up there ready. So I'd dash up and turn them in. Anyway, you, you oh, me, like um, that. Anyway, oh for me, oh yeah, well, for me
5: the turning point was between uh, in 1975 between Seeds of Doom episode six and Mastermind Director episode one, because I, it was then that I got the very first two months book that Terence Dix did. And I vividly remember they the large I don't know if you remember that it had a large photograph of Davros in it, Davros's head, which gave me nightmares. <laughs> um I and I know that's when it tipped me over to being the fan because Masterman and Dragon One was the first time I bought a copy of the Radio Times purely so that I could cut out the cast Oh yeah yeah we've all been uh, <laughs> and <laughs> um, once that happened there really was no going back
2: but well, mm. let me just say by the way I, I go before the whole missing it thing i remember watching the last episode of patrick trance dot who The all games the last episode of that and of course i was just very i was very young i would have be eight or nine or something like that and i and i had no and there was no advanced publicity that i was aware of and i watched it not knowing how it was going to end mm. and when it ended like that, with Patrick Chapman spinning off yeah. into the distance, and his friends never knowing who he was, really, never having had event, they blotted out their memories and sent them back, you know. I'm explaining for you, darling. No, no, I saw it. Oh, yeah. um, well, I... Because I, um, <laughs> I know everyone else in the room knows why I'm down.
4: No, no, <laughs> I, I did actually see it.
2: Oh, bless you. Um, I I, um, I, and just back looked, then. I, just looked at the television, and my mum came in and said, what's the matter with you? <laughs> and I said, oh. uh, I said... I think Doctor Who's just died (laughs) and it it whipped my heart out you know and I think then I thought and I think my mum thought he's serious about this isn't he it's ridiculous isn't it I'm slightly tearful to remember it (laughs) and it's just some 25 minutes load of nonsense with you know monsters lumbering around in silly costumes and yet you get you invest so much in it and I don't know I can't explain it to anyone why we get like this about Doctor Who Mm. but and I suppose the older you get, and the more it re- reminds you of simpler times when life exactly that's what binocular. I think. nostalgia yeah. for, for me is immense. Particularly, I've been watching a lot of your stuff recently, not just because I'm writing for you, but because I I love it, and my son particularly loves it. Loves watching the Sea Devils. And I I Planet thought of the Daleks it, I thought it
4: was it it sort of there was something so comforting yeah. about Doctor Who. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is spoken to somebody that watched it, not somebody that was this sort of massive fan. But I always found it, and also because it opened doors to me in terms of creativity, if you know what I mean, which I hadn't been exposed to before um, on television. And, And I found that really lovely. And of course, doing it, you know, was, especially in that time when it wasn't what it is now. There was something so lovely about being involved in this sort of, and it was this incredible, warm, cuddly feeling going to work and these great stories and playing a character that actually grew up. It was lovely, not just coming in and doing something, but actually being able to play a character that over time was changing. And, you know, it was it, it, it was a lovely feeling. And then you suddenly realise that when you mentioned that you were in Doctor Who, you could see even people who kind of weren't Doctor Who fans going, Oh, wow, how terrific! Because it became quite cool and trendy. And, you know, I was kind of considered to be like a really trendy, hip chick to be in Doctor Who. You were. And back you in were. the 70s, honey, being a groomy, trendy, hip chick was kind of nice.
6: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
6: Should we cram a couple of questions in from the, from the audience? Anyone Look, have a question? watch out there.
5: Yeah. So I'll just need Katie in five minutes. Okay. okay.
2: Yeah. Okay.
5: No, what, what?
2: He'll need you in five minutes. No, you anyway. won't.
4: <laughs> Trust me, you won't.
6: Quick questions. <laughs> quick, 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 quick quick.
2: Questions. Quick, quick,
4: quick.
6: Nothing. Any questions? Well, shall I use another one for my list? Should we do the long and
4: the short answers? <laughs> yes. Without the question. I
6: have. In your life? Not ever. Yes. What is the most important thing that WHO has given you? Don't say a job. No! <laughs> no!
2: <laughs> Ah. Life.
6: A tricky one.
2: <laughs> Anyone with a yeah, Stories. Yeah. yeah. Not just because it's the big finished slogan, we <laughs> like stories. But yeah, stories, stories. We are stories, mm. aren't we? I mean, I know this has been said in Doctor Who, written by um, uh, Steve, you know, Stephen Moffat. Uh, he, he uh, yeah, we're all stories. We are stories. We make stories all the time. We make narratives about everything that happens in our life, whether it's just how the car broke down, how... Your favourite thing in the supermarket wasn't in stock. In, uh, you know, when you went shopping, we all have stories, and and Doctor Who for me defined my understanding of stories, and still does. You know, which is why when I got an opportunity to write for the bill, I couldn't. I just thought, <laughs> oh, this isn't Doctor Who. I was say, I'm not, I'm the not thought interested. of
4: writing for Doctor Who and then the bill. God, I mean, yeah. I know who I'd
6: write for.
5: Yeah. <laughs> I think on. it gives you undoubtedly a sense of fun as well. Mm. Um, what which so it's not fun for you Nick. <laughs> <laughs> it's just hard work it, it, we do it because we enjoy it yes all, all of this we do because we enjoy it. whatever field it is um we do it because we're getting something out of it you know it's yeah. I, I mean it's a it's a bit of a downer to sort of say what a nasty horrible bleak world this can be But it is, you know, and it it really stinks sometimes. So it's lovely to have something that you can latch on to and just love it with a passion. Yeah. Just love it and enjoy it for what it is, and we know that it's creaky at the seams, and As you well. know, you, right. you you see the nail sticking out the wall, and you see the nail sticking out of Katie, and, <laughs> and you know. <laughs> but sorry about that. <laughs> but we love it for what it is, you know. And I, I think I think you've just, actually
4: said it there. I think it's that thing. This to me is true entertainment.
3: Yes,
5: this mm. is
4: what takes us from you know especially now with the way that we have all the different medias and, and, and social medias and so on. It, and the, the world just seems to become a more and more and more dreadful because you're seeing it through more and more negative eyes. And the wonderful thing to be able to look at Doctor Who when I watch it when it comes back on now is for that moment in time... I guess that's why i love acting too is that you are absolutely out of all that you're in a wonderful world of make-believe and all you have to do is bring the heart to it the writers give you the words the direct you know and it's 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 just thank goodness you know that we have this that's gone on from doctor who from where it was to what it is now and i think big finish has been a massive Massive part of that,
2: you know, something that a lot of fans, particularly Americans, because they're maybe a bit more forthcoming, coming emotionally, and also you're over there for a brief period and they feel they've got to grab you and tell yeah. you everything, you know. Uh, it, they feel that uh, the big finish stuff and doctors in general sort of saved them from emotional crises in their life, and I recognize that I've had bad times in my life where you know things have been awful. And Doctor Who rescues me because I can go and put a, a video the, on or a DVD as it ended up being, but you know what I mean? And that's it really what I find. Puts you the, back in a really But that's been place,
4: since way that. back in my time. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, when we started, especially when it got bigger and bigger and bigger, but even before anybody who saw it, nine times out of ten had a story of how it had rescued them, yes. either from a terribly traumatic home life or various illnesses and things like that. And that's why I think it's really important for us to honour and respect the fans because there's a lot of people there that have, you know, it's been a hugely important thing in their lives and I think that that's something that we need to really respect Mm. and look after and nurture and that's why I take so long to do the signing. But no, (laughs) but it's true. I think that, that that is vital. I think that, you know, everybody has an incredible story to tell and Doctor Who has changed so many lives because i've listened to the stories like you're mm, saying yes. it's not just in america it's very clearly here oh
2: yes, yes you
4: know and i think you know i think that's a hell of a blessing in a job that we've been given Yeah,
2: amazing. you know isn't it? Yeah. that's
4: extra
3: gift
6: <laughs> has that inspired any questions for yeah. anyone
4: <laughs> one
2: <laughs> where's the loo yes
6: <laughs> what's your story <laughs> When you went the... Um, I mean, talking as a plan, I mean, um, can you describe the, if was a real sense of indication doing The Lost Stories
2: of getting back a piece of Doctor Who history? Um, well, funnily enough, to be controversial, The Lost Stories idea had been put to me years before, I think by Clayton Hickman, who was editor of Doctor Who magazine. I said, no, I'm not interested. Oh, really? I really wasn't interested. I said, these are bits of Doctor Who. This is very controversial. These are bits of Doctor yeah. Who that, for one reason or another, were rejected yes. and passed over. And I said, and I'm not interested in going back to that. I want to do new and exciting things. However, David Richardson came along and said, I'd really like to do it. I said, well, if you really want to do it, then you do it. That's fine. And of course, it's and it has, I was wrong about it. It's exactly done the thing that you were alluding to, which is like, uh, these were things that could have been on yeah. the television. And I think that gives people a thrill. But yeah, I, I can I can see why I thought what I thought. Uh, as it, as it turned out, I wasn't right, but it, it's a question of how far you go. I mean, you know, there was one that Christopher Bidmead wrote that uh, he said that he um. he he had it, but we he said, "Oh, I found some more up in the lofts." So, <laughs> we think you're just right in this now. Actually, <laughs> you know. I'm sure
4: there must be quite a few that come yeah. your way. Oh
2: are, yeah, the, oh, I just happened to find this in the sock. It's a twelve part story, <laughs> mostly starring me.
5: Uh, <laughs>
2: It was worth it purely
5: for doing farewell, Great Macedon. Ah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, the, the, having the so chance to finally and, put that, yeah. um, put that out, it has, has been a real,
2: real blessing. I think because it's just a glimpse of, good story. of Doctor Who from a. It's a different kind of Doctor. Who. Yeah. It's not quite the series we know, is it? It's no. sort of yeah. It's yeah, interesting. No, that's lovely. Jenny. Um, Jenny, I want to know.
4: Um, just a really simple question.
2: What
4: okay. one scene scared you to death when
2: you were little? Oh. Have you got any one scene? Uh, one scene that scared you when you were little? <laughs>
3: really simple question. I really,
2: the, uh, the Silurian plague Ooh. really upset me as a child. Right. That predated you, my dear. But uh, yeah, yeah. I used to lie in bed at night. and It was the scene where Peter Miles came in and was infected by it and going oh, crazy, yeah, yeah. which is just horrific, yeah. isn't it? I was like,
4: that with the seeds of doom with the transformation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 I could imagine. I was a
2: teenager by then, so yeah. nothing was scaring <laughs> me. Funny. But uh, but yeah, I used to lie in bed and feel for the scabs because I used to think maybe I've mm. caught it through watching <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, reminded me remember the
6: martian chronicles when that was on television and the martians had no ears That's right. and i'd go to bed at night with my hands over my ears in case they stole my ears wow
3: i, I, I was quite old i shouldn't have said that when,
4: <laughs> when william hartnell tonight, first no. came onto the scene because yeah <laughs> but i do remember very clearly watching william hartnell in it right right
5: from the i remember william go. as well yeah. you know I, I'm, I'm absolutely with you uh the seeds of doom was the last one that genuinely scared me when I was young, I used to sit there behind a cushion yeah,
3: yeah.
5: watching the programme. That was the last one that I did that. Um, absolutely petrified. And then I had to go to a friend of mine, Deborah's party, on part six, and I had to miss part six. Ah. So the final part of the story... Damn, so Deborah. I, so, damn, Deborah. So I had, to, <laughs> I, I had to get my mum to sit there watch it so that she could relate everything back to <laughs> oh, me um so so yeah it absolutely petrified me but at the same same time I wasn't going to miss it mm. you know I, I was going to find a way you know it was it was a year or two later that I started pressing the tape recorder and recording it for myself but yeah, uh, that, that was the last one. That Jim, I found Jim a couple
4: in from. the new ones where i it truly <laughs> it's so silly, isn't it? But I oh, blink did it for me. As I've well. actually found myself, yeah. you know, because I always say it has to be the right thing. You know, assume the position on the sofa in front of the telly, right there, and suddenly I find myself. In, thinking, I now understand why people say I used to watch you from behind the show because I actually I can't, I can't <laughs> look <laughs> and isn't that lovely that I can still be affected by something like that, Do you know
6: Yeah. Well, unfortunately mm-hmm. I, think- I know
5: I'm afraid to say a back
6: Right, okay. We'll bring that to a close. We've got to stay
4: the cinema. Privilege of the next film
2: projected. Yes, I oh, will. Yeah.
4: And we'll so, still be going da, 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 da,
2: da, <laughs> It's going to be like. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, thank, nice you. You. thank you. Come down the round. That's the most truly panel that anyone's ever done.
4: Thank you, Nicholas. Yeah, whatever. No, we're.
3: The...